Good morning, Josh. Hey, John. All right. Uh, so welcome back. We're on the Midcoast Maine podcast. I have Josh Gerritsen here. I have known Josh since high school, and uh, he has just completed, well, you can tell me when, but just completed a project, uh, a documentary on pigs. What's the name of it? Magnificent Beast. Okay. Uh, what What did you learn about pigs? <laughs> What was your favorite thing that you learned about pigs? Well, they are, first of all, I learned they are extraordinary animals. They are unlike anything else that uh, we interact with, us us humans. Um, hmm, Let's see, the most most interesting thing about them, I would say how uh, learning how they always want more. You know, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk. And this is especially coming from, from um, interviewing pet pig owners that, you know, if you feed your dog from the dining table, the dog will come back, you know, the next night, the next night, and look at you with sweet eyes and whine a little and, and want that food. If you feed a pig from the dinner table and, and the next night you don't feed it again, they'll get mad at you and they might start breaking stuff and tearing through the walls. And, and I think that is one example of what makes them an innate part of their, I guess, personality that makes them so successful in the wild. I would, I would say they're one of the most successful invasive species in the history of the world because they can have um, litters two to three times a year that range between four to six or even up to 14 babies, depending on if they're wild or domestic. They are omnivores. They can survive in a wide range of climates. Um, They're tough as hell. You know, if I had to put my money on two wolves or a boar, I would put all my money on the boar. Because when a, when, a, when a wild boar is charging at full speed, nothing is going to get in his way. Um, but then I met pet pigs that weren't spoiled, where the owners didn't feed them from the dinner table, or they didn't, um, I guess, spoil them. And, and they were the sweetest things in the world. And, you know, they live outside. There's this one in particular that... She she would live, uh, you know, day to day. She she spend her time in the yard eating the grass, and then she had a little crate in the uh, garage that 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 she would sleep in, and she would make her own bed. She would bring in um, pillow or sheets, depending on if she, if she was hot or cold, and had a a really great relationship with with um, with the dog. And then I saw homes where the pigs ruled this was the majority of pet pig owners where the pigs ruled the house and the owners admitted it that 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 mostly you know one quote from the movie is mostly everything i do is is for her um and in those households they i think they always had dogs and we would come in you know we had a very small crew it was at the most three of us um and the dogs would run, would run up to us like, oh my God, give us attention, please, because the pigs, the pig's taking all of it. And the dogs would drop toys in front of us and whine 
while the pigs would would kind of strut around and um the proud pig the proud pig yeah so interesting i now i know you examined uh i haven't seen the film yet but i know you examined some of the dietary rules around um eating pork and the one of the thoughts as you're speaking that comes to mind is when these religions were developing early on did they have a kind of um close relationship with the animals right mm-hmm. where modern society were removed by and large from animals right you can eat steak every night and never see a cow um when for obviously for the majority of our existence human beings that was not the case Mm -hmm. industrialized farming has obviously changed that um but were you able to explore at all the idea of the connection between human beings and the animals and some of the development of those eating codes certainly yeah i mean there was a very intimate relationship with with humans and pigs throughout history um we talked to a number of archaeologists on their theories why they think the pork taboo exists in judaism and islam um, specific, specifically in Judaism, because that was the earlier taboo. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, it, in, in lots of different cultures, managing domesticated pigs was always a challenge. It still is a challenge when pigs break out. I mean, we were talking to people in Texas who talked about wild pigs coming in and destroying their crops in a matter of days or domestic or, or farm pigs breaking out and doing the same thing. And so that, issue of pigs getting into places they shouldn't be goes back thousands of years is is that where uh is that where the connection is at all to the social code or the you know eating code is it is it that human beings saw something in the pig that could be identified as selfish and then they connected that to eating the meat or i mean what did you get is that part of the idea so no one knows okay and Pretty much every expert we talked to had a different opinion on where the pork taboo comes from. Uh, one of my favorites is that it was a form of societal control. When people are eating ruminants, cows, sheep, goats, they need grass, pasture to survive. And if the um, authorities control pasture land, they control the food source and to a certain extent they control people. But pigs represent a form of food sovereignty. You can raise a pig on food scraps in your basement, hidden away from view. And so if authorities didn't want that, they wanted to take away that freedom, then one way you do that is simply say, well, it's taboo because it's, you know, they come up with some some reason. Um, We don't explore this in the movie, but we had heard an anecdote uh, somewhere, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where, that in um, Nazi-occupied France in World War II, a similar thing happened, where the Germans didn't allow French farmers to keep pigs. Um, another bigger uh, theory that we explore in the film 
is it was a way for Jewish people to really draw a line in the sand and say, you know, this is what separates us from Christians, from everyone else. You know, we don't eat pork. We don't associate with pork. Even though pork, when you look at the Old Testament, is not more prescribed than the rock badger or a camel, you know. Uh, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is is in in the old in in um, in the Torah, uh, people should only be eating animals that are similar to cattle, sheep, and goats. Um, so, uh, you know, if it has uh, a cloven hoof and chews its cud, that is kosher. But a pig has a cloven hoof but doesn't chew its cud, and so it's sort of so so so, so it's not kosher. But it almost seems like an imposter um, because you know it's got it's got half of the characteristics that, that that are kosher. But a rock badger, camel, same thing. They're not kosher either. But when we think of taboo animals for Jewish people, the the, the pig is what really comes to mind. You know that that's really the forefront of of our imaginations. Obviously, you know, Christianity came around 5,000 or so years later after Judaism or however they date that. I don't know. But uh, so they, they wouldn't have been differentiating themselves from Christians on that point. They would have been differentiating themselves from Sorry, the Egyptians, pagan, I think. Yeah, yeah. the pagan yeah. sort of uh, groups, Mesopotamians and Babylonians and all the other folks that were hanging around. Yeah. That's, in, that's an interesting idea, too. Um, so, uh, so you're done with the project. Yep. When did you wrap up? Uh, let's see. We we shot our last interview, I think that was in November. And the edit was locked right around uh, March or April. Very cool. And so we had animation that uh, was completed a few months ago, and our score is complete. So I would say it's, you know, it's it's almost always feels like a work in progress until you actually release the film and these days i mean i'm doing i'm doing the the color the sound the editing all in one program on my computer at home and it's in 4k it's extraordinary that we have the power in a in a single apple computer to do what used to take dozens of people i mean i've i've read these books on editing and you know, you had a machine uh, that was literally, it had rolls and rolls of, of, of film. And when you made a cut, you were physically cutting film. And, and when you made a cut, it was a very deliberate act because you were destroying something. And, you know, uh, when they say something was left on the cutting room floor, they literally meant pieces of film were left on the floor because they were, no, they were considered no good for the movie. Whereas now we can keep pushing undo. So a lot of freedom that way. Um, so, anyways, yeah, uh, the movie the movie has been has been finished for a few weeks, and we're submitting to film festivals now, and really taking a deep dive into all the ways to distribute the film and be successful with it. I, I heard or I saw a comment somewhere on Facebook um, about whether or not you were going to submit to the Camden International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're going to do? Yeah, we are going to submit there next year. Um, something about film festivals, uh, 
that I don't know if a lot of people realize is premier status. So world premiere, national premiere, state premiere. These are these are things that certain festivals uh, require. So to submit to Sundance, um, they will only accept you if it is a I think it's either a world premiere or a North American premiere. So if we it, if we had premiered at SIF this year, then Sundance next year wouldn't accept us. And so that's why we're we're holding. So you off. start at the top and you work down, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we're learning. I'm learning more and more that festivals aren't everything. This this idea that you premiered Sundance and Amazon and Netflix have a bidding war for your movie and the number they want to, you know, throw at you keeps going up and you make a million dollars. That is such a unlikely scenario for most films. Um, because there's just so many great films out there, um, and so we're not we're not putting our hopes on that happening. Um, but the festival experience, I think, is one of the most exciting parts of filmmaking. And with COVID, unfortunately, most of them are remote or some sort of hybrid a- approach. And we made a decision earlier this year to go ahead and and submit to festivals in in 2020. Um, higher prestige festivals because we we just didn't want to wait around for a year hoping things would get better and and when we submitted all of these prominent festivals um we're saying we're having a festival in 2020 it you know either in person remote hybrid but we're having something and so we didn't want to sort of um hold back we want to just be brave and 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 go for it um and we've been rejected by a number of them, and that's fine. That's that's you just prepare for that. Um, but going into next year, you know, we will release the film in 2021. Um, I don't know when. I'm not sure how we'll do that, but but that is the plan. Now, uh, this is your second or or more than second uh, big movie project. Yeah, this is my second feature film. Okay. The first one was a horror movie called Island Zero. Right. Um, we shot that in 2016. I directed that. Um, my friend Mariah from high school that you know, of course, she she produced it. And my mom, Tess Gerritsen, she wrote the script. And so we shot that in 2016. That was released in 2018. Um, so horror to documentary. Yeah. What's the thought process there for you? Well, to me, it's it's very straightforward. I, I love telling stories. I love making movies. And I like horror films. I am not a horror... F- that is not the one thing that I care about. Um, it's funny because Ridley Scott, who's, who's the director that I admire the most, um, he made Alien, Blade Runner, uh, um, Gladiator. I mean, he has got one of the most storied careers in the history of cinema. Um, but he was not a, a horror film enthusiast. Um, the script for Alien came to him in, I guess, maybe 1977. The movie came out in 1979. And, and he just wanted to make an extraordinary film that happened to be a horror movie. And you watch that movie today, it, it, it absolutely holds up. That could come out tomorrow and still be an incredible film. I recently watched it, uh, actually rewatched the first one twice. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, what what do you what do you love about uh, horror? What's what is the essence of horror for you? It's the ability to explore 
something in our culture, uh, a cultural anxiety, but through a lens that is fantastical. And so this sort of gives us gives us a way to step back from the immediate reality of our situation, like in 2020, and and look at it through a different lens. So I guess it's it's feels more remote. So I'm I'm like on board 100% with what you just said about cultural anxiety and exploring it. And um, so uh, so two follow up questions: What is the cultural anxiety in your mind that Alien explores, and what is the cultural anxiety that you wanted to explore in your movie? Great questions, uh, Alien. I have my own theory about Alien, but okay. I want to hear yours. <laughs> I think if I've, if I've thought about that deeply with Alien, I guess it's it's being alone and no one coming to save you. Okay. You know, yeah. and Alien's interesting because it's actually quite an ordinary story. They're blue collar workers on a mining ship. Okay. Coming home. That's that's all they are. They It just happens to be in the future and they happen to be on a spaceship. So, uh, so okay, loneliness for sure. Uh, knowing no one... Uh, coming to save you isolation for oh, sure and and corporations putting their profits ahead of people sure for sure for sure uh so for me sex is at the dead center of that movie human sexuality mm. um i don't know if you've ever had the chance in your world travels to run into the coffin of saint therese of lisieux no she travels all over the world this is a corpse <laughs> it's just a body, okay. right? Uh, yeah. It's a it's an exhumed body of oh. a Catholic saint, okay. and uh, she she's um, she doesn't uh, uh, what is it called decompose? Mm-hmm. Her body doesn't decompose for whatever reason, and uh, and she travels all over. They just they ship her all over the world, and um, and you know set her up and pour like fresh rose petals over the uh, the coffin. Yeah. And she looks immaculate. I mean, the body is immaculate. It looks. Per- she died when she was like 22 or something. Okay. This girl, and uh, in a tiny convent in mm-hmm. France, and she's known the world over. Um, strangely, um, but anyway, the point of me bringing that up is the final shot of Alien. I swear to God. What it is it? Is, uh, um. Uh, Sigourney Weaver's character laying down in the pod being sealed back up mm-hmm. and it's a it's a dead shot for wow. that uh, the and it's not just Teresa Lazio Bernadette of Subaru I mean there's all these female virgin saints mm-hmm. that don't decompose mm-hmm. and uh, and you know growing up in that world uh, you know that obviously that image is burned into my mind so when I saw yeah. that as an adult at the end of that movie I'm like holy shit <laughs> because she doesn't compromise never yeah and everyone else does yeah and the phallic um, imagery of the alien mm-hmm. right and impregnating it, that man well that too right? <laughs> and bursting out oh, of it's genius and the, and yeah. the the the, um, the gender swapping that they do yeah. In the 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 various stages of the alien growth and everything. Anyway, sex is at the center of that movie for me because yeah. and and to me I and I wonder about this like the cult talking about cultural anxiety. I think you hit it 100. percent Talking about cultural anxiety, like Alien to me represented the cultural anxiety of having sex in the 80s hmm. and what that meant. 
you know, I yeah. mean, with everything floating around yeah, and absolutely. the AIDS, but I mean, every, and not just AIDS, but I mean, everything, yeah. all the other STDs and everything else. And like, so I hear what you're saying about isolation, um, the, the notion of like the, the trauma of having no one to come to save you, um, which is probably a lot of what people felt too in, in the sexual arena as well, I think. Um, I remember watching Freaks and Geeks mm-hmm. and uh, so, so, someone either got pregnant or had an abortion or something and they got kicked out of that. Yeah, I can't remember the character, but they were they were talking about that topic and it and the way that they treated that topic was such a it was so quintessentially 80s. Mm-hmm. And um, they just pushed the kids out of the house, <laughs> you know, and then that, that was yeah. what was going on. Yeah. You know, there were these like mores that they were trying to uphold and and um and so they felt like the best way to deal with it was just to shove people out of the way. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, uh, and, and for your movie, what were you, what were you trying to capture? Um, there are some similarities certainly with alien being isolated on an Island and, and no one coming to save you. Um, and, but the bigger theme of it is climate change. Okay. It, it so is, that's, is that the monster? The monster is a apex predator that uh, is, fo- is simply following its food source. Okay. And warmer waters pushing those, those fish towards the Gulf of Maine. I mean, Tess wrote the script and we were developing the film and we were in pre-production and it just, more and more news stories came out. I mean, she does her research, obviously. She does a ton of research before she writes a book, before she writes a screenplay. And so this was already in the news, but but I was just so floored how how often we would see an article about um, the lobster industry starting to collapse, you know, further south of us, and and just climate change coming into the forefront and that changing epic predators. I mean, a woman was killed by a great white shark in Maine. I for, did, I didn't jump into Rockport Harbor once this <laughs> summer because of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for the first time yeah. this summer because of climate change. It's exactly, an apex predator following its prey it's right out of our movie so is the real movie uh i mean is the real monster of the movie actually climate change in a sense like that that's the unseen monster that you're actually talking about. i would say so yeah, yeah. you don't picture that no we picture a creature you picture the creature that, but behind the creature is this idea yeah so and, um yeah and so in, in the movie there's a debate about that is this creature bad is it good is it simply following its biology i think you make a better film as as a director, perhaps as just storytelling in general, where you just you don't have it's not as simple as good and evil, right? No one sees himself as a bad person. It's shades of gray, and so I, for me, I never thought or or talked about the creature as a monster. Uh, I would always make sure that people thought about it and talked about it as a creature because it's a creature following its biology. So, um, yeah, certainly storytelling requires a, a certain amount of ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, if it's, if it's, if everything's clear, um, well, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. So I have to say that on the level of, uh, reading books, I was never like super into story. Um, my fascination became, uh, in, in reading books, uh, came when I was 16, so very late. Mm-hmm. And when I started reading, um, medieval, uh, philosophical texts, oh, so wow. very abstract, 
you know, uh, they just had discovered Aristotle's logic in the West. Okay. It was in the Muslim culture because okay. it was in the libraries in the East. And it would it just came around to the West. It was the new hot thing in <laughs> Italy in the 10th century, 11th century. And so all of the smart people were um, reading Aristotle's logic. And so it was very abstract mm -hmm. and doing theology based on that. Anyway, that was my interest. But um, as I've had children and as I've been reading the bedtime stories, I have grown in the appreciation of storytelling. And we're reading through Andrew Lang, who's this Scottish librarian, I believe, but compiler of stories. Okay. And he has all of these fairy books, the red fairy book, blue, green, yellow, orange, brown. And they contain a lot of the source material for what we would know as the grim fairy tales mm. and other other compilations yeah um and so and, and i think there may be some grim actually in there but there are all sorts of cultures and it's a fascinating move and in a lot of those stories and of course they're for young children good and bad is very clear good and bad is is defined you know it's it's obvious who yeah. the bad character is and it's obvious who the good characters yeah. and then with adult fiction which is what you're engaged in adult storytelling more it would seem um yeah you guys do have to play that ambiguity card mm -hmm. a little more and and so in in our documentary on pigs um we talked to people i mean one guy he thinks they're dangerous pigs are dangerous and evil um you know we talked to the head of the usda feral swine program he, he doesn't think they're they're bad or evil but but he talks about the destruction they cause and then you have people that love their pigs yeah and so you know i, I wanted to really show um that range that's nice now where did your interest in story come from um my interest in story well i i came i came to filmmaking i guess not through story just the picture shooting um when did you start shooting uh my first film was in seventh grade okay drugs the movie <laughs> it was for mr reed's health class okay and we had a vh vhsc panasonic camcorder and uh it's on it's actually on youtube um and it was it was the ultimate like innocent movie because this is before my my friends and i I didn't. I didn't do drugs in school, but but my friends said before we like had had tried drugs or alcohol or sex, just totally innocent. And it's basically about a um, uh, someone who's addicted to drugs trying to get clean. Um, and so he goes through this journey of getting drugs, shooting police officers. Oh uh, going to a um, going to a, a doctor who's trying to help him, and then he kills the doctor. It's it's pretty pretty heavy stuff, but you know we're seventh graders, so it, it doesn't come across as, as as that heavy. I don't think you can make that movie today in seventh grade. I think you might be expelled, or shooting least, cops or something, or yeah. just doing drugs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I played uh, in, in an overweight police officer who gets killed. I play a doctor who gets killed. <laughs> It's, you, you, know. you died a bunch in the movie. Yeah, it's oh. all in good fun. Okay. And and so that was that was my first film and then other silly films in middle school and high school. 
but I just love shooting. Was your mom an author at that point in seventh grade? Yeah, she started writing romance novels in the 80s. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, that. but her her first medical thriller, uh, Harvest, I believe that came out in 1996 or 97. Okay. And so that was the beginning of that. So era. you came from a world of storytelling in yeah. a way. Yeah. In a way. Did yeah. your mom read you stories as a kid? I mean, is that a big memory for you? Or It's not. Oh, okay. It's not actually. But uh, you you were aware that she wrote? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, she was a, she was a practicing doctor. And when she had uh, me and my brother, she wanted to be able to work from home. Uh, she entered Hawaii's fiction contest and got first place. And that sort of proved to her that, that she could write stories. And... Um, and so, yeah. Which, she, is that where you guys were living at the time? Or Hawaii? Uh, yeah, why why yeah. Hawaii? Oh, I okay. was born in Hawaii. Okay. And uh, lived there until I was six years old. Okay. And we moved to Camden, Maine, because uh, a number of things. She was just getting sick of living on an island in the middle of the Pacific. She got island fever. And, um, and also for her career, being closer to New York would have been beneficial. And so uh, I'm not sure their the scope of their search but i know camden landed on uh they 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 heard of camden through a sailing magazine my dad is a lifelong sailor and so um and so he he came to maine and interviewed at penn bay and another hospital um they offered him a, a place to set up shop and so that's that's why we came to camden uh, and my parents have lived here since 1990, so it was cool. it was a good choice. Nice, very very cool. Um, what have you taken away from living here? I mean, you, you probably have some memories of Hawaii, yeah. Um, but obviously, the vast majority of your time has been in this area in this yeah. region. And um, what what is it about this place? Because I know so many of our friends, and I don't know what you did, you know, right after you graduated, and you can tell us. But um, so many of our friends moved permanently. Mm-hmm. or or basically permanently or maybe just coming back you know this year yeah. but uh so many of our friends moved to boston or la or new york or wherever yeah and uh so you seem I, tell me if i'm wrong but you seem to have stayed a little bit more close to this area there is something incredible about the midcoast area um i left for 10 years so i went to college at skidmore uh, after I graduated, I did photography in New York City for for five or six years. Okay, so um, you you started a little a career there. Yeah, and then you came back. Yeah, and um, the original reason why I came back was I got more and more interested in sustainable agriculture. Okay, um, for those five years in New York, I felt like I was doing the same thing. I was shooting weddings. I was shooting portraits for magazines. I was doing college relations photography. I was assisting photographers. It was great. I was learning a lot. Uh, I was eating great food. I was going out on the town and, you know. Soaking and, it up. And soaking it up. Yeah. I um, I, I had a girlfriend for, for, for most of that, the same one. Um, and looking looking back, it, it felt like all one big experience. Nothing was changing. I wasn't bettering the world. I was having a good time and, and, and my business was getting better and better um, commercially, but it didn't feel like I was moving forward in life. 
Um, and then I read An Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, talked about sustainable agriculture. And um, Maria, my, my, my partner at the time, um, also got intrigued with, with the idea of, of being farmers. And then we watched uh, Food Inc., we watched Fresh, we watched American Meat, and we thought, well, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a life? to stop riding on the subway, you know, overcrowded subway to get to work, uh, void of, of any real nature, and feed people. And my family has this land uh, in Lincolnville, eight acres of pasture, there's a barn, there's a well, everything you need to start a small farm. Um, and so we left New York. Uh, we did a five-month apprenticeship at, um, at a farm in Western Massachusetts, North Plain Farm slash Blue Hill Farm. Um, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. We worked five and a half days a week, waking up at 4.30 in the morning and going to bed at 9.30. And it was incredible. I mean, to, to throw yourself into something that is that hard and to stick with it and to come out at the end with that knowledge and that experience and that sense of accomplishment. It, how, how long were you there? Uh, five months. Okay. And so that was a, uh, a, uh, that was a farm that raised uh, grass-fed cows, so 100% grass-fed milk and, and beef and tomatoes, uh, chickens, eggs, pork, all of that stuff. How have you brought that into um, your experience in Lincolnville? So when we when we came here, we started a farm called Donkey Universe Farm, and so I raised 100% grass-fed Scottish Highland beef, uh, Katahdin lambs, uh, had eggs, chickens, pigs, that kind of thing, um, and so I had that farm for for a few years. But the the thing about me is I'm a really I'm an extrovert, I'm a very social person, um, and and farming. It turns out was not for me. Um, <laughs> Interesting. And I was wanted a, to see how this was going to play out. <laughs> it, it was a very expensive um, learning experience. You know, buying the infrastructure to start a small farm and then decide after a few years that that it wasn't what I wanted to spend my life doing. But what the shift was in 2014 when I was weeding uh, my flower garden with my mom, and out of the blue she asked me if I wanted to make a horror movie. And, and I, and I asked her, you know, what, what would that look like? And she said, well, you would direct it. I'd write the script. We shoot it in Maine. It'd be a ton of fun. And I said, yes. And the thing about me and the thing about her is that when we say yes to something, when we green light an idea in our minds, we do it, we, we see it through. And so that started that shift to making a film. And I was still farming, but more and more that sort of shifted my thinking and made me realize, you know, I, I don't, farming is, is not what I want to be doing. One, one challenging thing about sustainable agriculture, local farming, is the food is expensive. To, food is expensive, right? And when you, so much food you buy in a supermarket, um, those prices are subsidized with oil subsidies, corn subsidies, soy subsidies and and so you're not seeing the true price of that food you know a hamburger at mcdonald's well that's a deflated price because um corn and oil subsidies 
you know, when you buy a pound of grass-fed beef from a local farmer, that is the true price for that farmer to raise that. And in our society, we don't, our modern society, we don't really value that as much as we used to. I think with the pandemic, it, that interest is coming back, certainly. Um, and so it felt like having the small farm in Maine, I was essentially producing great food mostly for the 1%. And everyone needs to eat, but it didn't feel like I was really bettering the world, I guess. That's uh, not too cheesy a way to, to say it. Um, and so I felt like, well, I'm, I'm throwing my life and my blood, sweat, and tears into this. But why am I doing this? Um, there's already a ton of incredible farms in the Midcoast producing this kind of food. And now I'm making this film. And that was a really hard decision. It's it's important to know, you know, it's one thing to see through a project, but it's also important to know when to quit something. How did you deconstruct the farm? Um, well, the first thing was I had a a, a family lived um, in the apartment above my barn for a year, and without them, we couldn't have made the film. I mean, he he the husband Andrew ran the farm basically day to day. Uh, and he and he also had a day job, so that that was incredibly stressful and a ton of work. And I will always be grateful for the for what they did for me. Um, and um, I'm trying to think the exact timing. I, I I scaled back more and more. It was really a matter of sending animals to slaughter. Um, in a and not replacing them <laughs> and not replacing them exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then selling off the assets. Okay. Um, you know, it's not like I build a $300,000 grain silo. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about um, small, small scale farming that your infrastructure can be flexible. Right. Um, if you're building a $300,000 grain silo or a, or a chicken barn, you really can't do much more with it than that one specific thing. Okay. You can't pivot. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, that's how I moved away from it. And, and not only am I doing filmmaking, I'm, I'm also an architecture photographer. I do drone work. So a number of things involving photography and filmmaking. Do you have one business or multiple businesses? Uh, my personal business is Josh Gerritsen Media, but yeah. then I work for Donkey Universe Films, which is the, the film company that I, that I run with my family. Okay, and is Josh uh, Gerritsen Media, is that... Does that also include some architecture work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I have been, we talked a little bit about this before the podcast. I have been rethinking the way I want to do my own business. And uh, I bought my family's jewelry, jewelry business and uh, basically consisted in buying some inventory and buying the name. And uh, luckily, I also came with the skill set, so that's uh, <laughs> that's a good thing. And uh, and I've been able to you know carry on for like four years now. But what has interested me lately has been to shift the identity or the idea of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a jewelry business, but I thought, wouldn't it be good to have a media department? And I worked through that for a few weeks, and then I thought, wait a minute, what if I could have a media business that had a lucrative jewelry department? (laughs) And 
I'm still toying with that idea. I'm still playing with what that means. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, and granted, these are all just ideas. Ideas that help you organize your mind and your work and your what your week looks like. How do you use the eight hours of your day? Yeah. Um, if you pull this uh, forward a little bit, this this part actually has to come leaning toward you. So this this part back here. Yeah. If you if you pull that cool. forward, there you go. So. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so I I've been I've been toying with that idea, but I'm thinking like I want to sh maybe shift the business. Um, just just in my mind mm -hmm. you know so that i have a little bit more freedom to do uh, a variety of things um it sounds like you and i might be kindred spirits in some sense because um we want to get into things we want to get into them deeply we might not want to get into them forever yeah um the other theme that i'm picking up and you said because you've said it twice now both in reference to new york and your time there and also in reference to your farm uh and the product that you were producing being f a very high quality product, but for a very limited audience is this notion of, um, you know, am I making a difference in the world? Am I helping Yeah. where you're at right now? Um, what, what are your thoughts around that idea? Um, so, you know, no one needs another horror movie in the world that entered, but I think entertaining is uh, is a huge part of of people feeling good. I mean, look at this pandemic. Netflix got us is getting us through it. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, for uh, some, for some, although now the new thing is to cancel it. But that's a whole <laughs> we could talk about that. But um, and you know, the documentary that's that's first of all, I think the big documentary is going to have a much wider appeal. Um, horror fans, you know, not everyone's a horror fan. I, I can't tell you. No, I would say. Eight out of ten people, four to five people, I, I, I told that I made a horror movie. They'd say, eh, horror's not, not for me, but maybe I'll watch yours. I never liked horror until I realized that it was basically talking about what you call anxiety or the, I, what I would call the moral life. Yeah. It's basically talking about the moral life. Right. And, uh, or the immoral life and the, and the, tie, the tie in there. Yeah. You know, what are the consequences? But um, so... Uh, but specifically now, I mean, those films are past you now, even though obviously you have to go on to promote the yeah. the, um, the documentary. But um, you want to keep bringing stories to the world that are um, exploring where we are and, and kind of, you know, move us forward from whatever, you know, dangers we may face. Is that the idea? I do, yeah. The next film I want to make... Uh I don't know what it is yet. I want to make another documentary. The thing about documentaries is you have, I think you have so much more control if you don't have an unlimited budget. A documentary, you can take your time making it. Um, you know, with, with, with a narrative, with, with a fictional film, I think we were spending $600 an hour when we had the cast and the crew on set. You know, things need to go just as planned. If you need to do reshoots, you need to fly dozens of people back in. You know, for the documentary, we would we would shoot interviews. We'd look at what we had and say, oh, I think we need a little more. And then we'd fly out and shoot something again with a crew of three. That being myself, my mom, and either my dad or our friend Irene uh, Hidal as the sound recordist. And that was it. Very small scale. And then, you know, doing all the editing and sound and color on my own that that creative flexibility was was really important and i felt 
some of that was lacking with Island Zero. I mean, you can see the budgetary limitations of Island Zero. Um, and I'm proud as hell of that film, but there are things that didn't work because we just didn't spend enough money. Um, so in terms of wanting to make a difference in the world, better the world, I see the main way that I do that through elected office, through pub public service, I guess. Yeah, that's a whole other aspect of your personality. So uh, you were elected, what, three years ago? Four uh, years? Let's see, 2017. So yeah, three years. For my first term. I was just reelected last month. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so you've been uh, a local politician for a little while. Um, I don't know, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but um, what uh, what drew you into that? Um, Same idea, wanting to make the world better? Your, lo your local area? Yeah, well, I, I've been interested in politics since high school. Um, that is something, I, I always saw, yeah, I mean, that is a, the most direct way to change the world, hopefully for the better. Uh, I've, I've had a stutter my whole life and it is something that I was very self-conscious about. It hasn't come out much. Yeah. Well, I'll get there. Okay. Um, <laughs> that I struggled with in middle school and high school and to a lesser extent college. Um, and the interesting thing about stuttering is the more you're, you're worried of, that you're going to stutter, the more you're going to stutter. Sure. And there are lots of different ways that people stutter. I don't know all the terms, but. For me, at least, and this is probably quite common with stutterers, you're worried about a certain word. <clears throat> and so there are hundreds, thousands of times in my life where I didn't use the word I wanted to use to lower the probability that I would stutter and I sounded less intelligent. Why didn't you want to use the word? Because, I, because that word had a higher probability of stuttering. Oh, I see. And just the particular letter combinations yeah, in the word government. Oh, oh really? That, that was a big one. Something with M. Um, okay. And in so I, I got to college and I said, I am not going to stutter. Yeah. No one will know. This is my dark, deep secret that only people from high school will ever know. about. That's a pretty good secret. <laughs> <laughs> and so I willed myself in, in class conversations not to stutter. Wow. And I was like, oh, I don't have to stutter. And then it would come time for class presentations, mm. and I would be there, up, you know, on uh, in front of the class, and it's like every third word I was tripping on myself. Not every time, but I can distinctly remember many presentations where that happened, and I would just see a sea of horrified faces in front of me because they had no idea what was going on because mm. they had never heard me stutter, and so you know it would come out here and there, but. I don't know if it was necessarily an epiphany after that, but more and more I felt, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore that people know I stutter. It doesn't define me. It's not who I am. Screw it. And and for for all of college and for some of life after, I thought, you know, I would love to run for elected office because I think that's the most direct way to affect change. You know, not work for a nonprofit, not lobby politicians, be the politician, take those votes. But I, but I said to myself, not in this lifetime. I have a stutter, and I, I've, I will never be able to do that in this life. And so then I finally, I just got over it. And I'll, I'll try to tell this, this part of the story very quickly. Uh, so I moved back to Maine uh, in 2013 and 2014. I went to my local Lincolnville Democratic Caucus, and I walked in not being registered to vote in Lincolnville, and I walked out 
registered the Lincolnville Democratic Party vice chair and a member of the, and a delegate to the state convention. Fresh blood. Yeah. And a member of the Democratic Waldo County Democratic Committee. And so okay. in the Waldo County uh, Committee, it was a few months away from the convention. And we were talking about the draft Democratic 2014 state party platform. And for marijuana, it said, you know, we the we the people in Maine support a um, support this um some change to to marijuana policies in light of the federal government's current failure it, it meant nothing and so i raised my hand i was still a little nervous no one knew who i was i said you know i think we should be really strongly advocating for the full legalization of marijuana it's 2014 and so i came up with this language that said we support the full legalization of marijuana for adults 18 years and older while protecting minors from its use and the committee agreed. It went to the state convention. The The convention uh, platform committee rejected it. And on the floor of the convention, I didn't think I was going to have to do this, I defended my amendment. I wore a suit. I had a speech written up the night before on an iPad, and I, and I read it to thousands of people. And, and, and the person who was running the convention, I didn't know at the time, was the main uh, was the House was, was the Speaker of the House, a Democrat, and I was looking at this man and s- giving a very vigorous speech about how if we don't legalize marijuana, we will continue to have m- have people of color, we will have veterans being killed in drug raids, um, and and you know uh, the in- the incarceration rates are are vastly disproportionate in this country, and that would continue, and like we need to change this now for those reasons. And the majority of the convention delegates agreed, and, and it was added to the party platform. Um, and that was so incredibly empowering that in this state, you can show up to a meeting um, and a few months later be giving a speech at the convention and get something added to the party platform. Interesting. Something that in New York, in New Jersey, in California, in those much bigger states, it's just so much harder to break into politics. Well, you know the sheer the sheer size of those states. I mean, it's uh, it's an enormous mechanism. We only have a million people here, right? Or yeah, a little 1. over three or something. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I, I think about that all the time uh, when I watch YouTube videos that have a, mi- a million hits, and I say, "Oh, the state of Maine watched it." You know, <laughs> like that, and that's it for the entire world. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, a million doesn't seem that big anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hear what you're saying. So so wow, that's a that's impressive that you uh, that you have went out there and had the cojones to do that. that I think that's fantastic. Um, I, I'm, I, I won't get into the actual issue of marijuana because we would not agree at all about it. But um, and that's not the point of this podcast. But uh, so uh, or maybe not yet. But the experience on uh on the local level at the um, at the level of Lincolnville, um, have you found that rewarding to, to do that work? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been very rewarding, and I want to first start by just saying um, we had a Lincolnville selectman get killed yesterday. I know, I saw that. Um, and that, or two days ago rather, and uh, Dave Barrows and I served with him since 2017, and uh, you know I'm really gonna miss him. It's horrific. Was a tractor? A tractor. He was uh, cutting firewood, and it it rolled over on him. Um, he worked at uh, Rankin's, I think. Huh? 
Rankins was his second job. Yeah, wow. Yeah, uh, he was profiled in Patricia McLean's book, um, Main Street, came out, I think in 2009. Okay. And beautiful photo of him and an absolutely beautiful um, write-up of him, and it perfectly encapsulates who he is, and, and I hope more people get to read that. And he talks about how he's had two jobs in his whole life. The first one was working for French and Braun, and the second one for Rankins. Wow. And he likes, he would say that, he appreciated that they treated they treat people more than just a number. Um, so, anyways, with that said, uh, yeah, I, I really feel like I am making a difference on on the link of a board of selectmen, however small. Um, just just having a variety of voices um, on a board a lot, gives you hopefully makes better decisions. I think so. Um, I want to get on a little soapbox for a second and just say it's really disheartening to me when I hear people in this country wanting to shut down debate and conversation, um, especially on college campuses. When I went to Skidmore, it's a, it's a very liberal institution. I'm a Democrat. I'm a progressive. I'm a liberal. And I was always so happy when conservatives and Republicans you could call them extremists, would come to campus to speak because I wanted to hear what they had to say and then we could debate, we could respond to them. But I would always want to give them the space and the opportunity to say something. Um, Why? Because that is the American way. That is how democracy thrives. And if we start shutting people down, if you think they're racist, if you think they're bigoted, if you don't let them talk, it will fester. We need to always have a debate and not be afraid of hearing the other side. Um, and uh, you know what I just said may actually not be that popular in democratic circles to say in, in some places, but I think that is that is democracy. That that is being a true American. Uh, just hearing, you don't have to agree with the other side, but at least giving them the space to to talk. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very um we're in an we are in an interesting moment. I think when we went to college, what two thousand two to two thousand six, yep. something like that. Okay, yep. so I was at uh, a small liberal arts college as well. Very. Oh, I don't know. It's so complicated. There were a lot of like conservative sort of people. Well, I don't know know how to say it. Uh, there was definitely a conservative presence on campus, um, but then also it was. You know, it was a healthy mix. I'd say it was a healthy mix. Okay. And um, I think what I, what I've studied about the time that we were in school, two thousand two to two thousand six, and and it and it branches out from there a little bit on either side. Mm-hmm. That was a period in time of relative peace on campus. I yeah. know there were some things going on, yeah. but nothing like what was happening in the sixties on campus. Oh yeah. And nothing like what's happening today on campuses. You know, there was Absolutely. violence in the 60s, protests, all that kind of stuff. And and now, as you say, it's about shutting down conversation and shouting at each other. Yeah. And uh, did you follow the Brett Weinstein uh, thing at all? Brett Weinstein. I yeah. Mean, who's that? He's a he's a professor, I believe, at Evergreen Evergreen University. OK. Um don't ask me where that is. Uh, it's a it's a tiny school, 
it, it, it's like it's like uh, if Riley was a college. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's small. Yeah, well, it's 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 very free. They can you know change the curriculum how they want to. It's very progressive. And and uh, anyway, this fellow who identifies himself as a progressive found himself being shouted down as a racist and a bigot, even though he okay. was like right on the front lines for a lot of. Um, a lot of work around voting rights and mm-hmm. all these interesting things. So it, the, the tides are turning yeah. in a very strange way. Um, I don't know if you've studied the roots of it at all, but the idea that, um, that you can come to truth or at least some version of the truth, but yet you can come to an, at least an agreed upon truth through conversation mm-hmm. is a very old and very Western idea. Um, you know, it goes back to Socrates. I mean, Socrates was doing it on the street. You know, he'd say, he'd ask a general what courage was, and then he'd find out that the general didn't really know Mm -hmm. through questioning. And they would try to come to some version of the truth. Maybe they wouldn't come to a final conclusion as to what the definition was, but, you know, they would eke out the the territory of the, of the idea. Well, this, this other idea is that conversation, dialogue, is actually a mechanism of those who wish to oppress others. Okay. And so that so that the di- dialogic itself, um, or what they call foul logocentrism, is this notion that conversation actually represents the one percent over the ninety nine, mm. and that therefore your speech is oppression your speech your very acts of speech if you don't agree with me mm-hmm. are oppressive against me and that um and that you're keeping me from being who and what i want to be mm-hmm. or or whatever the situation is yeah and so it's a very different worldview it's a very different worldview empowered by a very different philosophy is that more from the progressive side 100 percent. okay yeah it's a, um, although, it, and progressive here doesn't mean, it doesn't have to mean what we usually mean by it. Yeah. I think that certain elements of the alt-right are also progressive. Okay. Um, in, the, in the sense that uh, they, are, they have moved beyond the notion that you just announced from your soapbox. Mm-hmm. That conversation, the airing of ideas and conversation can lead to um, greater articulation. I like the idea too that you brought out that you know if if people who have really nasty ideas don't get to let them out, that they fester. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, that's a whole flip of this. But that being said, I think there are some elements um, on the right and the left that really. Um, have moved beyond that notion of of good conversation. Yeah, certainly. And 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 one other danger of it is, you know, right now, um, the progressives are are sort of winning the culture argument in terms of, in terms of you know what is considered appropriate speech, and you'll be canceled if you show you know examples of racism or bigotry or or anti you know transgender speech. Um, but what happens if that flips in the future and people on the other side have speech that's no longer seen as, as kosher 
And then their speech is basically banned and canceled. And and it can go both ways. And so that's why I, I just, yeah, I, I, just, I just always want dialogue. What's the status of, uh, you know, and I mean, I have examples of this from, you know, my own, you know, experience my own friend group and and uh, you know people that i know and love and people from my family actually you know what's the status of a gay conservative because you know the the big the big uh, idea back when we were in high school and it was just an idea mm-hmm. and then it realized itself was you know uh gay gay marriage yeah right and that obviously was pushed by the democratic party yep and and then by de facto for a hot minute during that election was fought against by the Republican Party. Now you you can now you see Trump, you know, not even bring it up. Yeah. And in fact, say like, you know, almost who cares? Like, I don't this is not part of the conversation anymore. Right. And uh, so clearly wasn't a, um, an actual issue for the Republican Party. It was no, just, it just became an issue. Yeah. Um, the wedge issue gods guns and gays right right but it's not they're not uh, it's interesting to see what's real and what's not that's my issue that's why i i have a harder time doing what you did because i can't identify myself with either party Mm -hmm. so it's like where's my where does my voice locate yeah well and that comes down to another huge issue with them with the american experiment we have two parties yeah it's a disaster but for me but we should have more like six parties I mean, I am not, uh, I am not a, you know, my ideas, my political ideas do not align with Nancy Pelosi's. I am much more progressive than her. And, but I'm more of a Democrat than a Republican. And so I will vote for the Democrat, but it doesn't truly represent me or millions of people in America um, when we vote for Joe Biden, you know? Um, Of course, we're going to vote for him, but that doesn't really show America and the world where do people really want to be politically. You know, that's the thing about the parliamentary system where where you have to make coalitions. And it's a greater reflection of what people want. Um, yeah, and I, I don't I don't know how we would ever get to a point where we had more than two parties um, to, to act, you know, parties that could actually more than two parties that could actually compete for the presidency and Senate and House seats. But I think that's a real loss. I think it's a stretch of the imagination to a great degree. And people work themselves into all sorts of gymnastic, uh, mental gymnastics in order to justify the conglomeration of political positions that are in one platform. Yeah. And they can do it. You know, you can you can you can make whatever argument you want. And if you make it persuasively, you can make it stick. Like, you, you know, that's the that's the gift of rhetoric. That's just the truth. Um, we've known that forever. Uh, and if, if anyone wants to know about it, just read Aristotle's rhetoric and you will understand um, how it works. But, uh, you know, I said to a, fr- a family friend of mine who's pretty high up in the Democratic Party in, in Maine, I'll leave his name out of it uh, in, here, um, but I'll tell you afterward. But, um you know, I said to him that, uh, you know, I, I wish I'm a real kind of independent and um, I wish that the Democrats and the Republicans weren't so dug in on some issues. Like mm-hmm. I wish they allowed some greater flexibility 
on issues around poverty or issues around abortion or issue, you know, issues around the environment or, or whatever. Like I wish they, that you could belong to like actually feel like you belonged to a party without, you know, the, I, I find the party platform to be restrictive Mm -hmm. because neither of them match me. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, okay, well, how do you, you know, I just don't know how to operate. It's very difficult to uh, to operate. I mean, and I'll push back on you a little bit. I, I think with that notion of um, politics and that notion of um, the importance of conversation that you espoused, mm-hmm. I would actually locate you more as a traditional liberal mm-hmm. rather than a progressive because I think at the base underneath the progressive push is this alternative notion of conversation um this alternative notion of what speech is Mm -hmm. it's not just a conversation it's an exercise of power over other people that's the that is the new progressive notion of of conversation i i do wonder though how many how many people actually believe that in america they're manifesting it and how many are just afraid to push back on it? How, how many Democrats, how many liberals are, are afraid to, to stand up and say, hold on, let that, let that Trump-loving person speak. Don't just shout, shout him down. He's, he's trying to be respectful, and he wants to say his piece, and let's, let's hear him out. Um, I mean, the, the, so, yeah. I mean, let's be clear. I actually think Trump falls into this same progressive, what I would call progressive, mm-hmm. um, mode as well the way that trump uses speech right and the thing that the quote-unquote left hates him for is the same thing that i see when i watch um people on the left shout down other people Mm -hmm. i I actually see it as the same phenomenon Mm -hmm. it It is and it's using truth as a stick yeah and uh and and also it also comes with the requisite like feeling of being threatened you know, and that goes into again the moral life and the emotions. Everyone feels so threatened right now. Yeah, and you you, you offended me. You know, right. my 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 I'm fragile. I I posted something yeah. the other day by an author. Um, it just the 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 quote rang true in to my experience, mm-hmm. and uh, it was something about the newspapers and their inability to get things correct okay. or whatever. And um, someone I know and care about posted uh, right under it a series of vile quotes uh, that this man had also said. (laughs) And they were utterly gross. Uh (laughs) They were disgusting. And, you know, I thought about, okay, how do I respond to that? Do I delete them? And I said, no, I'm not going to delete them. Do I respond to them individually? I said, no, I'm not going to respond to them. I wrote to the person privately and I just said, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what do you want? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. And, and we had a really good conversation and she ended up actually taking them down herself, which is interesting. Or, or she told me she was, I don't know if she actually did, but I don't, I don't try to look back. I try to look forward. But, um, you know, it was this sort of guilt by association, although it was the same person, but it was kind of guilt by like other things that he had done wrong kind of deal mm-hmm. to, to invalidate the actual argument in the quote. Although yeah. I think that one still rings true, but, um, I see, I see, um, a lack of intestinal fortitude 
That is to say, a lack of willingness to sit across from someone that you don't agree with about much. Mm-hmm. And to be okay with that. Yeah. And be to, uncomfortable. Yeah. This came out actually in a converse, two conversations ago with a man I, uh, that I did the podcast with, Harvey Ardman. I said, what I love most, what I'm actually attracted to and I enjoy doing is being uncomfortable. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. I enjoy because it's actually, that's actually, it's sort of like meeting a girl for the first time that you yeah. fall in love with or something. Yeah. There's something uncomfortable about it. And there's, oh, yeah. and it's, it's scary. But I actually like that because it's like, okay, there's some risk here. Yeah. There's some uh, opportunity for growth here. Yeah. There's some um, willingness to change your, my own position. Yeah. And also willingness to like engage. Okay, so I've got a few things that I want to say. Please, do. I love that you brought that up. Okay. The first thing I I need to give a shout out to uh, Philip Glotzbach. He was the college uh, president of Skidmore for my entire time there. I think he just recently stepped down. Uh, really great career, and and he said in one speech at one point something about make yourself uncomfortable, put yourself in situations that are not comfortable because that's how you grow. Um, so I, okay, so I stuttered my whole life, right? I got over that. I think I'm a stronger human being because of that. Barack Obama um, was uncomfortable for a lot of his childhood. He was, he was in Indonesia for several years, totally out of place. And so as president, when, senator, when, when Republican senators are trying to tear him down, he doesn't care. He doesn't, he brushes it off. And I think a lot of that is he struggled. Um, and I don't have children, so I can't, I, you know, I, I shouldn't give parenting advice, but but I think that a little bit of struggle is is good for us. That's how we become resilient. There's, there's you know, scientific research on this. And having an older brother that teased me a lot, I, at the time, I hated it, but I think that also, on some level, was rather helpful. Siblings are really good for resilience. <laughs> yeah, so that, so that's that's the first point. The um, um, I want to make sure I don't forget these points. Um, one thing that I really love about our pig documentary is that we talk to people from a broad spectrum of the country. We we Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, we share this country. None of us are going away, so we need to find a way to get along, and. We talk to pig hunters. We talk to pig trappers. I don't know their politics. They're probably not the same as mine, but they were so kind and generous with us, and we had great conversations. And so I hope on some level um, our pig movie bridges that gap in America and that you can see you know, pet pig owners and hunters and vegans and chefs all from different walks of life, all from different political um spaces and sort of see America and see the world and 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 be okay with that um and the last thing I that I want to say about this is that so I've been an atheist since third grade um and religion has always fascinated me and I've always tried to be respectful and listen and be thoughtful when talking to people who had different beliefs than me um, in college, I was in an all-male acapella group called the Skidmore Bandersnatchers, and I absolutely loved it. And there was a, an event called Basilea that was uh, at the end of, of, um, 
of the school year where uh, Christian college leaders would come together at this summer camp for one week and there'd be prayer sessions, uh, you know, Bible study group, and but also just like ropes courses and amazing food and singing to Jesus and movie nights. And um, and a friend of mine, he I was a junior when he was a freshman, he invited me to come to Basilea for a week. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I went, I was the only atheist there. I was surrounded by people that were very devout and I had an amazing time. I had great conversations with people. I ate incredible food. I went on the ropes course and I was scared out of my mind. And every step I was just, I was just, I wanted to, to quit, but there was no way to quit. You just had to continue until you were done. And when I touched the ground, I said, I would never do that again, but I'm so glad I did. And later I asked David, I said, you know, I was scared out of my mind. And when I looked, looked at everyone, everyone had a big smile on their face and why was that? He said, well, they knew they had Jesus with them. And I said, well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. But well. so, but yeah, I mean, that's how we grow. Yeah. You know, and, and I have uh, one brother, Adam. Uh, we have different political thoughts, but we're both very respectful and thoughtful. And he's expanded my mind on political ideas that are not conventionally liberal. And I think I've expanded his mind too. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, I would say that I'm semi-fluent in gun speak now mm. because my brother, he, he has a few guns and we go shooting when I, when I see him and I've shot most classes of firearms with him. Um, and so I remember I was at a barbecue in Saratoga Springs. This is a year after, this is right after I graduated. I was still living there. And um, I, I only knew the homeowner because I had gone and photographed the house for a small magazine. And she invited me to a family barbecue. And I was there across from two men in camouflage. And everyone else was dressed very nicely and they had camo. And I don't know how it happened, but we started talking about the 17 HMR rifle round, how it's a nice flat shooting varmint round. And I, and, and I had shot that. Um, and that allowed me to make that connection with them. And likewise, with the Texas Hunters, you know, when, when they're explaining the caliber, the 300 blackout round that, that they're using in thermal scopes and AR-15s and 308, I knew all that stuff. I knew what they were talking about, and I could tell them that I've shot those guns, and they trusted me from that. I found, I found them through, through Facebook forums, and there were a handful of, of comments from other hunters who were members of those groups saying, don't trust these filmmakers. They're going to they're gonna embarrass you. They're going to make you look bad. And this group called Squeal Team 6 Texas um, and and a man named um, John Hancock in, in Texas, they took a chance on me, you know, and and um, and I'm grateful for that because they didn't have to do that. Yeah, I think the experience of. Um, oh, of putting yourself out there uh, is is so critical. Um, and. Uh, it's the only it's the, it's really the only place that we grow. So in contrast to that, instead of that, mm-hmm. we, um, we exist in echo chambers in our own social media to a great degree. Yeah. We create safe spaces on college campuses. Um, and, uh, and we presume to know what the other person's about. Mm-hmm. 
I, I wonder, you know, my, one of my big areas of interest is, uh, is virtue ethics and the notion of presumption is very present in, in virtue ethics. It's a mental habit. Okay. And you know, it's, it's, it's the act of pre it's pre knowing. Right. Yeah. And, um, sounds like it's prejudice. Like, like um, <laughs> like, uh, uh, here I'm stuttering like minority report with with tom cruise right pre-crime pre yeah right? pre-crime pre-crogs pre pre-crog. i just watched, have... yeah yeah <laughs> i just actually read 1984 for the first time oh thought boy. crime double think double speak i mean it just blew my mind yeah uh and we have a lot of that now thought crimes have you read road to wigan pier no i haven't it, it will it will uh it'll expand your mind okay <laughs> that's it so 1984 is his is his you know taking aim at um, fascistic you know type regime yeah and um and road to wigan pier is him taking aim at socialist regime oh oh, oh i'd love to yeah I've gotta read that. and he and he dismantles it with equal skill um so uh, anyhow yeah uh so we create these kind of uh bubbles for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we presume to know where other people are. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's such a, um, it's a survival mechanism. I get it. Yeah. But, you know, we're so much better than that. We're so, we're so much, um, there's so much more to life if you can drop that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that you don't take the time in thoughtful reflection to make a judgment you know we have to make judgments in life yeah about the state that we want for ourselves for our friends for our family and for our neighbors with politics mm-hmm. you know um the you know the notion that we're not going to have impact on each other is just non-existent we always have impact on each other we're yeah. always making rules for each other mm-hmm. and um the one thing that, you know, I don't know where you're at with this, the vilification of our, our current president, president, um, obviously, you know, the way you've at least set this conversation up, you, you're not the biggest fan. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not the biggest fan either, but maybe for the inverse reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, he's no conservative. He's not a conservative. He's not anything. He's a life right. He's an opportunist, right? We got we yeah. we came to that a couple conversations ago. Um, he ser- he certainly serves himself and his family and his legacy and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so, in some ways, is very American, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because you know, and and in 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 some ways, that's not wrong, right? To serve yourself, your your family. And your legacy, that's not a wrong thing. When you're not holding elected office, yes, I would completely agree. That being said, even when you're not holding elected office, you know, there's more, yeah. right? There's the neighbor, right? There's the person person in need, yeah. right? There are other there people. There should be. Well, yeah. there are. I mean, there okay. are other people. And then, you know, if you, if you have any kind of morals, you're going to be uh, in, uh, inclined to help other people. That's right. Right. You have to secure something for yourself, but you are inclined to help other people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so with someone like Trump, it's interesting because 
I think there's real moral outrage from the left. I think there's a ton of feigned moral outlay outrage on the left from for political expediency. Yeah, because it makes great rhetoric. Yeah, and we can shut them down. I think a lot of a lot of um, so-called leftist criticism of him, you know, around the last year has just come from you know just the machine just needing to churn out more material Mm -hmm. um if he had run as a democrat and made the same decisions it would sound very different that doesn't mean there wouldn't be critique Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between critique and piling on i i mean i i definitely agree with you dependent on you know which attack you're talking about but well, absolutely I just on a broad level i'm yeah. not trying to get into like yeah. the but n- absolutely nitty-gritty. absolutely yeah i mean with with bush with with any president who's you know the opposite party will pile on rhetoric that is not always deserved at a public paid institution um the main school of science and mathematics mm-hmm. it's a charter school in northern maine i went there for two years that's okay. why you didn't see me for two years okay i was wondering <laughs> in high <you> school <laughs> i just quit no i went up to i went up to northern maine i had a teacher up there who okay. consistently referred to bush as shrub see in, i don't think in, that's not okay in every class that's not okay constantly and um and it happened and you know what are you supposed to do now granted was from my perspective was bush a, a a good president you know there were some things i liked that were going on and there were there was plenty of stuff that i didn't like and then in retrospect you know hindsight's 2020 20, there was a other thing but you know it was a mixed bag for me yeah. to me every president's a mixed bag okay. and if you if you um if you paint the apotheosis of george washington for every president <laughs> You know, it, it's absurd like that, that it, you know, nothing in this world is all good. Mm-hmm. I haven't found it. I have not found it. AOC. No, sorry. <laughs> nothing. She, she comes close. Yeah, well, I guess. <laughs> um, nothing. I, I haven't found it. Mm-hmm. I haven't found it. And uh, there, you know, um, it, it felt like a religious revival when, when Obama was elected. You yeah. know, that's what I would compare it to my, I spent my life in religion. Yeah. You know, uh, you spent your life, uh, not in religion, uh, but interested in it and not wanting to offend people. <laughs> I spent my life in religion, offending people, <laughs> <laughs> including people in my own religion. Wow. You know, um, how'd you, how'd you do that? How did I offend? How did you offend people in your own religion? Uh, well, one big way was, um, I studied to be a priest for five years mm-hmm. and then I left. And that's, that's what really I looked down on. Well, it was, <laughs> I don't know if it is, but it sure was. Um, yeah, I broke everyone's heart. Oh. I broke everyone's heart. Oh. Uh, and that must've been so hard to deal with. No, I just, <laughs> I learned, I learned, um, I mean, I learned the caliber of people. You know, who am I dealing with? Mm-hmm. You know, I've spent I've spent my life studying, you know, Catholicism. Right. I've studied other religions, too. Certainly. Um, I was well aware that when I was walking from my house on Pearl Street to the little Catholic church on Union Street, that I passed by about six other churches, depending <laughs> on which uh, direction I walked. Yeah. You know, I was well aware that there were other religions. But mm-hmm. 
yeah, I spent my life studying it and, 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 and practicing it, you know, as well as I have, or as poorly as I have. And the, the difference between what the religion is in the text and how it's lived and who's living it obviously is gross. I mean, there's a huge difference. Yeah. And so I've had to try to understand what that difference is and what that means. Okay. Because, and, and in my own self, right. I mean, I'm the first practitioner that I know about. Right. And I, and I do it well or I do it poorly, you know, and what that means and what the difference is. Yeah. And being drawn back to the source of, of the religion as opposed to just how everyone is, um, playing it. Mm-hmm. That's actually in some ways why I left. I ha- huh. I had to ask the question, can I live an authentic human life in this moment mm-hmm. as a priest? Can I do it? Wow. And the answer was no. The answer was no. And there were a variety of reasons for that, mm-hmm. you know, and I played the play, the blame game a little bit. And, uh, and, and I'm somewhat, and I'm, it's interesting that, you know, the, the difference between recognizing what's going on in the external world and what's going on in the interior world is important. Yeah. You know, um, to me, it's a shitty situation right now in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, obviously when we were in high school, um, and in college, you know, the sex abuse scandal broke out. Yeah. Um, but they haven't addressed the issue. Mm-hmm. They haven't. They haven't addressed the issue. They put in a lot of um, nice bureaucratic protocols that are correct, mm-hmm. and they should have always been there. Frankly, like go to the cops if something's going. If, if a crime is being committed, <laughs> right? That's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you need a special meeting for that one. Right. You know. The, I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff that um, you know is obvious if you're a responsible, basically moral person yeah. in the world, regardless of religion, mm-hmm. just some basics. What know? do you, what do you think about the most, to me, the most obvious fix, which is allow priests to get married? Oh yeah. No, it's a disaster. If you did your research, you'd, you'd find out in about 10 minutes. It was a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, no, that had nothing to do with it for me at all. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not um, for you, but I mean, just, just yeah. to, to fix structurally one of the big issues. No, it would actually make it a lot worse. And, um, and it would also require an entire change of the religion. Okay. Um, this, uh, this came up in the 12th century. So if you remember (laughs) your 12th century history, (laughs) it was the called the, uh, this, uh, the priestly land crisis. Okay. The priest land crisis. If you get married and have kids, where does the land go? Right. It doesn't go back to the church. Right. It goes back, you know. So there's a whole series of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm just referring to the the basic sexual needs of males. Yeah. So um, the 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 that actually gets to the heart of the sex abuse crisis as well. Okay. Um, and but it also gets to the essence of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, I I say that it doesn't have anything to do with me. Of course, it does, but. Uh, you have, there used to be a teaching and it's still there, but it's not, I don't believe very well explained or very well. Um, 
lived. And by lived, I don't just mean on the individual level, but also on the institutional level. Okay. Priests are chosen from celibate men. Mm-hmm. Celibate men is a class of man. It's a it's a group. Yeah. Okay. So you've already made the decision to be celibate. Okay. There are lots of men for whom that decision was not, has not, and will never be made who are priests. Mm-hmm. So right there, you're, you're, uh, you're at failure. Mm. So what you're saying is, and you recognize it, you're saying change the rule. Um, the fundamental discipline in the Western church, which is not true in the Eastern church, Eastern Catholics. There's a whole, I mean, there's a whole freaking world. There's 16 Eastern churches. Okay. And, and there, and some are in communion with Rome and some are not in communion with Rome. So it's this whole very complicated thing. Okay. Goes back to a thousand AD. Anyway, (laughs) uh, sorry. So, um, but the, the discipline in the West is to total dedication to Christ. Total. Okay. So no time for wife and kids. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's the idea. It's okay. very monastic. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, and even in the East, who, uh, the priests are allowed to get married, but the only people that can become bishops are celibate men. Got it. Okay. I, I, this is a little aside. I was in Burma for two weeks in 2006, just traveling around, taking pictures. And I, I met a man who, uh, he was a monk. He was a monk, I think, for five years, and then he fell in love. And this, this is probably a very common story, but, you know, same idea of being celibate. And uh, I think th- at that point he had two girlfriends. Um, but, yeah, he needed a lot of love. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but obviously I could see those those parallels. And I wonder if there's a Buddhist monk scandal, if, if, if that has ever been an issue. There's a, sex, there's a sex scandal in this country. And also around the world, but there's a sex scandal in this country. Percentage-wise, more people involved with public schools um, infract the law in that way than, oh. than priests. Percentage. I didn't know that. Yeah. Just just looking at like news reports. Yeah. Okay. You can do that. You can dig into the research. Okay. Yeah. Larger percentage. Hmm. Um. So. Uh. And. And to actually another level of that conversation is that we're not just dealing with prepubescent children. We're dealing with uh, non-consenting postpubescent children. And we're dealing with uh, semi-consenting or non or... 16, 17, 18. Yeah. We're legally, they've reached the age of consent. You know? Right. And then, and then even after 18, we're yeah. dealing with power dynamics. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's not a pedophilia scandal. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's a scandal at multiple levels. Um, it's not, I should say it's not just a pedophilia scandal. In fact, that only represents 20% of the less than 20% of the cases. Okay. So that makes makes sense. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, and it's not just the Catholic church. It's, uh, we're dealing with a sexual, actually sexual crisis to bring it back around to alien. You know, we're actually dealing with a sexual crisis and it's, and it has to do with adults, um, overpowering people, not just kids and not just teenagers and not just 18, 19. I mean, we're dealing with adults who are overpowering people, um, you know, that they have power over. Would you say that like is the Me Too movement's the same thing, right? Actually, 
would you say that is uh, more of an issue in the U.S. than uh, European countries? I, I, I have no research on this. I would, I would assume yes. Um, it's certainly. I mean, there have. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was an issue in Ireland. Mm-hmm. There's a big issue in. Um, there was a big issue. I can't remember what country, but in South America. Um, well, I guess putting aside the Catholic Church, yeah, and looking at schools, yeah. for example. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know the numbers on it. Yeah, I don't know the numbers on it. I've I've been mainly focused on the United States, mm-hmm. just because of my own experience. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, it's just a sad. It's it's just a sad state of affairs that um, you know, and you know, to talk about COVID. I mean, you know, if you put people in an isolated position, you restrict their money, mm-hmm. you make it so that they're unable to make make rent. Uh, in a lot of cases, yeah, um, you know the incidents of violence and sexual abuse, spousal abuse, mm-hmm. things like that. It's not going down, right? And um, yeah, and people get desperate, and people make stupid choices. Mm-hmm. And you close the churches, and you leave the liquor stores open, right? And it's an interesting choice. Say what you want about religion on a on a theoretical level, yeah. or whatever, or the or God or whatever. Like, but functionally, how do how do these things function? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and it they function as releases. Oh yeah, and they function as places to put your energy. Yeah, you know, in community. And yeah, well, that's a place to put your energy, yeah. right? I mean, that was. That was Hegel's version of religion. Was the you know was the spirit, the community, you know, spirit, the spirit of the world, mm-hmm. kind of idea, and um, and what? Where do you go uh, if you don't have that? Yeah. Um, this this whole shutting down of everything for a period of time uh, was for some people hell on earth. You yeah. know. And I, I feel personally so lucky that it wasn't hell on earth because I have a great partner. I live in Maine. We have the outdoors here. I'm into, you know. Well, you're self-sufficient too. Well, monetarily, of course. I mean. Well, I just mean like that changes things. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I mean, here I'll get, I mean, I'll tell you my own life story. Yeah. If the pandemic had hit in 2019 in January, February, whatever it was, yeah. and we were shut down for three months. Yeah. I... Um, I don't know where I would be with this business, for instance. Wow. Then this business is the means for my family to eat. Yeah. Um, we were in debt, mm. you know, college debt, both of us. Uh, we had two leased cars, monthly payments. We had other debts, business debt, uh, all sorts of things. Yeah. For whatever miraculous or other reason, I spent 2019 getting out of debt. That's awesome. 100%. That's amazing. And, um, and, you know, it's 100% dedication to it. And it's, uh, it's a different, you know, it's a different world. So suddenly there's no bills. There are no bills. Yeah. You know, and my landlord was kind enough, uh, Mr. Dickey was kind enough to waive the rent in April. Hmm. Who can say that? 
Yeah. Like, holy crap. Yeah. Um, and it's because he's in a good financial position. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. There were landlords here who have mortgages on their on their fancy Main Street properties. Mm-hmm. And they had to make rent. And so they either had to say, well, just keep paying it. I know your business isn't open. Just keep paying it. Or I'll give you half off now, double it in October. Mm-hmm. As though October is going to be great. Right. Who knows? Yeah. Everybody's down. Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, what do you do with these economics? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you play these... Um, Maine's a tough state to have a business in. Um, Maine's a tough state to have a business in. There are a lot of taxes. Um, there are, you know, local property taxes. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of catches. Now so, you live in, you live in Rockland, right? I do. Okay, and so my understanding is Rockland, the taxes generally are higher there than. Yeah, it's the county seat. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. We just, we actually just rent in Rockland. Oh, you just rent. Okay. Yeah. We just rent okay. right right now. Yeah. We're still kind of deciding where we eventually want to settle. Yeah. We, um, we don't participate in the school district. Okay. So are uh, they home? Are your kids homeschooled? Yes. Okay. And so, uh, it doesn't matter where we live. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, although I had an interesting conversation last week with a woman who was talking about the differences between, you know, the camden and rockland school system and how snooty camden is (laughs) uh although there are situations here that are actually worse if you look at issue by issue there are situations here that are worse and going on in the school system than rockland and then some and there are certain things that are going on in rockland that don't happen here it's a mixed bag yeah and that's that's my whole thing it's this that you could call this democrat and rockland republican Mm -hmm. and you could hurl insults at each other and half of them aren't are you know they're based in truth but they're not actually real right yeah (laughs) and that's my whole issue with partisan politics is how willing people are to sacrifice to the god of their party Mm -hmm. and um there's a lot of blood there, and some of it's uh, rancid. I feel like I feel like some of it's not actually based. You know, how do you make a sound assessment of a political opponent? Mm-hmm. You know, but you you almost can't because that's not the game. The game's to win. When there's two parties, crush absolutely. it, crush yeah. the other person. Yeah, you have to crush them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and I don't know all the details about it, but I know some. Obviously the impeachment um, hearings were political. Well, I mean, inherently, in- impeachment is, is, is a political act. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, that, wouldn't that... it have been nice had they got him out? <laughs> <laughs> On impeachment. Fantastic. Right. Yeah. Great. Let's yeah. pursue it. Let's pursue it. And let's find any grain of truth mm-hmm. there is. I mean, we know we know that lawyers run Washington. Yeah. You know, let's find any grain of truth and crush the other side. And you know the Republicans did that with Obama. Mm-hmm. You could see that one more clearly <laughs> than you could see what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that this impeachment was, of course, from my perspective, totally necessary. And uh, you know, if you're if you're when you swore when you swear an oath to the Constitution, you sort of I feel you sort of have to do that. You know, sure. impeach I mean, if. 
I, I, I'm not a, I'm not, I mean, obviously we have the mechanism in place for a reason, yeah. but what I'm talking about is the use of the mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I recognize the deviousness, I guess I see it. I see a lot of these things as quite devious. Mm-hmm. I don't see them as pure. Yeah. Uh, how did acts. you, how did you view Clint, Clinton's impeachment? Same, same way. Yeah. Yeah. Over a blowjob. Well. Lying. Yeah. But I mean, obviously the technicality was lying. But did it even have to happen? No, I don't think so. No, but it was genius mm-hmm. that well, it did. Politically, politically, actually, it, it he gained seats in the '96 election. Sure. So, I think politically it backfired, um, but it, it's still imp- well, impressive. No, got no, so no, far. no. That don't no. read it. Don't read it too short, though. Okay. Because well, I mean, you know, politically it backfired. Yes and no. I mean, it also cemented the Republican base. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not true. just about yeah. seats in one election. I that's mean, that's, true. Yeah. that's that's fine. I give you that. But mm-hmm. like, there, this game that we're playing is is a game that's going on for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Um, the res- the fact that the mask issue has become political is just a game. Mm-hmm. You know, remove it from the context of the CDC. If the CDC has recommendations, then that's what it is. Yeah. And if the if the states want to pass laws or make recommendations or do whatever statutes, mm-hmm. then they do that. That's all fine and good, right? But when we take it to the level of okay, you're not with us because you're not doing X, yeah, then it's political again. Yeah. And and that's and and Trump knew that too. He played that political game like a genius. Yeah. I'm not going to wear the mask, but he's like, of course I'll wear the mask. I was just wearing the mask. You just didn't see it on camera. Like, oh my gosh. Right. So I have such a mixed opinion about Trump because I mean, is it true that we haven't, uh, that he didn't uh, push us into any wars in the last four years? I mean, we were not in a, yes, he hasn't started new wars. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and he, and he just drawn the troops down again. And from my perspective, um, this is one area where I really grew. Because when I was in college, uh, George W. Bush, president, war in Iraq. Yeah, uh, that was our that was our college experience, right? Right, two thousand three. I was for it. Okay, I was for it. I have changed my entire worldview since then. Hmm. I am not for aggression i'm not for aggression uh against dictators to destabilize regions just not for it now i can understand that there are pros to doing it Mm -hmm. like if everyone else it's it's the old lycurgus trick greek uh emperor he i I believe it was lycurgus he would walk through a field Okay. And if a if a, a a shoot of wheat was up too high, up to his eye level, he would cut it down. So I get, huh. I get knocking people out of power so you can stay relatively in charge. Like I get that. Mm-hmm. That's a sick, badass Greek emperor move. Mm-hmm. But it means the death of a lot of people. And in twenty years, those kids are going to grow up and hate us. I mean, it's so obvious to me. I, so I am. This I don't know where this puts me politically, but I am absolutely against um, interventionist policies for the most part. Arming the rebels, 
I don't care who the rebels are. I don't care where they are. I don't think we should ever arm the rebels. Didn't we do that with Osama bin Laden? Of course. We armed in the 80s. We armed him and then we killed him. And then Obama's a hero for killing. Like, fuck. Like, yeah. that's so, to me, so messed up. We helped Saddam against Iran. That's in, right. What, the 70s? Um, it just goes back and back <sighs> and back. Um, and what are we, what, what, again, what's the point? Now, now, have we benefited you and I from that in a weird way? I, you know what? I, you know what I mean? Like that, that is to say we knew relative peace right here in Camden. Right. 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 There is no wars going on over here. Right. Um, but see, I don't think it benefits America. No, I don't at all. In, no, in the long term, when we arm the rebels, the rebels are you know, seize power, and then those old rebels are now our enemy again, and then we arm new rebels, and we just start the cycle. And then, you know, look, I didn't like Osama bin Laden. I think he was a bad man. But when he told us why he didn't like America, he was being honest. He said, I don't like that there are dozens of U.S. bases in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. I want you out of here. And, and I think to a certain extent, you know, he wasn't just a crazed maniac, no, he's a man with a purpose. Yeah, and and that was us being, uh, you know, um, just having all these bases around the world. Obviously, that can upset people who are in those countries. And put that aside, just all the blood and treasure that we that we spend on on going into you know these countries that that we could use for universal health care or building bridges or education or this and that i mean well so it's interesting yeah. because this is where i feel like and you know people people who listen to this podcast won't like me probably saying it or whatever but this is where I, for me i like someone like trump they fed him the opportunity to blow up that boat in Iran and the waters there. Remember that? That's yeah. whole story. Like they fed him that opportunity. Mm -hmm. They baited him to do it. Mm -hmm. The generals, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the indication and he yeah. was going to do it. And then he changed his mind. Do we know why he changed his mind? Was that I, I, from what I recall, I could be wrong. I have to go back and look, but I remember he was um, just weighing the lives lost hmm. and it was like, this is too much. You know, you, yeah. you put your boat in the wrong place. We're going to murder. all. We're going to kill all these people. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe not. I could be wrong about that. Um, So, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my time def deflecting and saying, you know, why Trump is inhuman. Mm -hmm. It's easy for my people I talk to to hear that. But and, and I think some of that is true. I'm not lying, but I think that some of that is true. Um, I, although I think he's a product of the left, actually, he's a product of Hollywood culture. He's a product of, oh, yeah. of, of megalomania. Mm -hmm. None of that is consistent with conservatism. No, complete opposite. <laughs> actually, yeah. you know, yeah. where you're moderate and if you, you know, anyway, so also it's a product of libertinism, mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as conservatism. Mm -hmm. That's more Marquis de Sade style stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the same time, though, um, yeah, he hasn't he hasn't brought us into any, you know, any wars. This is where when Tulsi was running, Tulsi Gabbard, I was like, oh, I can get into your rhetoric here. Mm -hmm. I really can get into your rhetoric yeah. because um, she was so clear about war. 
and she had served. Yeah. And yeah, I, my my pop my 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 uh, opinion about not you know, and I'm not talking about you know sort of necessary wars, although that that idea is getting thinner and thinner with me. I'm not talking about the complete absence of war. I'm not a pa- yeah. I'm not a pacifist. Yeah, like I'll I'll punch you in the nose. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind punching you in the nose. Right. Um, but you know, there's gonna really have to be a situation where that happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And there yeah. are, and even still, you know, all the experts in martial arts like that I listen to talk about like even even if you could, even if the situation called for it, you still don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And you you know you take a punch. Or you catch the punch and you walk away, mm-hmm. and that's it. If you can, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And and most of the time you can. Yeah, that's the idea. Justified war is such an interesting concept. I mean, I did not question. Hold on a second. You okay. keep 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 talking. Okay, I, I did not question the dropping of the atom bomb in Hiroshima or Nagasaki until college. Uh, I don't feel like we ever talked. I don't feel like we ever really talked about it. Um, John is answering the door. Um, I don't think we talked about it in middle school or high school critically. Uh, It was just kind of an exception. Did you talk about it in college critically? I I didn't. Um, And so I just thought, well, you know, it was the right thing to do to drop the atom bomb that, that stopped the war, that saved American life, that saved lives worldwide and that was the right thing to do and you know now i think about that with a bit of shame and horror that i didn't question that early on but it was not part of the school curriculum um the first time i got pushback on it was i was in the back of a 15 passenger van with my acapella group we were driving through florida because we would always go on spring break to florida to sing at uh, skidmore fundraising events and um and this this man, uh, white guy, he was raised in Tokyo. His I don't know what his parents did, but but he apparently he spoke he just spoke Japanese until third grade, and then his parents thought, oh, we should probably he should probably learn English, something like that. But um, yeah, when I was I don't know how it came up, but I was casually talking about the atom bombs, and he was so angry at me, mm-hmm. saying, why in the hell would you think that was justified or the firebombing a Tokyo, which I don't think I really knew that much about that either. And, you know, but who who won that war? It's the Americans. It was the Allied. And so they get to write the history. Um, the, I think we just passed the 75th anniversary of the dropping of those bombs. And uh, there were a number of podcasts and um, stories on the radio about it, just sort of looking at it critically. Um, and there was I didn't realize that that uh, I think Japanese journalists weren't even allowed to talk about it or write about it or take photos of the devastation until I think the 50s. And there was an American journalist, I, I'm blanking on his name, who, who it was a very long um, piece in I think the New Yorker or the Atlantic, I think the New Yorker, about the after effects of dropping the bombs in those, in those cities um, and just how horrific it was. Thank you, Priscilla. Have a good day.
indiscriminate killing um, would definitely be against uh, just war theory. <laughs> yeah, you would you would think so. <laughs> well, no, it is. I mean, it just is. Yeah. I mean, if you if any any just war theorist, um, you know, the Catholic position was that this can never be done. Mm-hmm. You can't drop the atom bomb. Yeah, you can't do it. Were they consulted with before the dropping? You know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know, uh, but I know that the bishops produced a lot of material at the time. Okay. I don't know what the I don't know what the relationship between the um, the Truman administration mm-hmm. and the, the Catholic Church was. And and yeah, the the program was already going when Truman was was elected. Right. Um. And one podcast I listened to or one article. I read talked about the machine had already begun. Yeah, the train was already you know leaving the station. Truman really was just he just it's just signed off was, on it. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know a ton about it, but uh, just on a theoretical level, yeah, you you can't indiscriminately kill people mm-hmm. um, ever. Like that's not <laughs> that's just not allowed in that system. Yeah, of 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 religion or philosophy mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just not a thing that's accept morally acceptable. Yeah. And I think, you know, what does it do to the psyche of a nation? Us. Mm-hmm. When you're raised in a situation, when you're raised and then 50 years later, we're in school and being taught that in a kind of, you know, Oh, this just happened. La-di-da. La-di-da. Kind of, uh, Wait a right. minute. You know, and, uh, you know, for me, my my personal identity, you know, um, is 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 it's it's tied up to my religion. And so um, whatever that actually means, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I know it's tied to it. Yeah. Um, And it gives me a vantage point to look at life with. Mm -hmm. And it gives me a vantage point to look at politics with and at my country with yeah and you know the decisions of this country are are not always moral um i mean maybe that's a silly thing to say but it's just it's well it's absolutely true and yeah it should be obvious right and that doesn't mean i don't love being here right and it doesn't mean i don't i'm not thankful you know for um the experience of my life like this is predominantly where i've lived my life like how could i not be thankful for being alive and being in a place that has granted me freedom to do what I've wanted to do. I mean, that's pretty amazing and I'm very thankful for it. But at the same time, recognize that, you know, uh, particular decisions that were made. Um, you know, I take, I take issue in some ways, uh, with some of the founding ideas of this country. Like there are actually issues, you know, I don't know. And, and to be honest with you, no one knows. I don't know how well or how long the idea of religious indifferentism plays out. Mm. You know, uh, you and I aren't killing each other. Mm-hmm. We have wildly different worldviews. Yeah. Uh, you know, I sat down with a Jewish man the other day. I sat down with a Protestant. Like there yeah. were hundreds of years where we just killed each other for that. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, it still happens around the world. Well, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Right, for sure, but not not. I don't want to say at the scale. That no, that no. used to happen. But yeah, that could come back. It could, you know. So reading 1984, it was really depressing because they talk about high, middle, low, and how middle will partner with low 
to overthrow high, promising low that they will join them in the middle. But then the middle will become the high and the low will stay the low. And the low always stays the low. And that's the way it's been throughout human history. And that, it made me question, will we ever really change inequality in, in, in the world? Is this just the way human civilization works? And I, even if you want to degrade him to the level of philosopher, uh, which some people do, um, you know, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, and he wasn't saying, you know, and, and I think he meant that economically. Mm-hmm. I think he meant that spiritually. Yeah. Spiritual poverty is a uh, worse. It, it well, I, I don't want to play these language games but spiritual poverty is a bad thing mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> uh, when you have nothing on the inside mm-hmm. and you're feeling dead yeah you know um but but even on an economic economic level yeah spiritual poverty is uh is a or excuse me economic poverty is a real thing mm-hmm. and i don't think it goes away yeah but but i do think that i mean i i love to look at scandinavian countries and see ways that we could be better here i do think we have enough money to at the very least you know give people universal health care we could buy everyone a loaf of bread sure yeah and we could um and for what that whatever that represents Mm -hmm. you know yeah uh in rome it was called panas et kirkensis right uh bread and circus games right (laughs) entertainment and food yeah and good emperors knew how to win the masses Mm -hmm. with stuff yeah and we're doing the same thing you know, we're doing the same thing. Oh, we'll promise you, you know, health care or we'll give you voting rights mm-hmm. or we'll give you, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So um, but at the same time, yeah, the people that are being done for in politics are at the low level, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so to speak. Um and yeah, it, I think it's a mentality too. I think it's a bit of a mentality. I think you can choose to a great degree how you spend your time and your uh, efforts. And um, and I think that the, I think I, I, I still see this place, this country, as a land of opportunity. Personally, mm-hmm. I see I I do. I know maybe that's not politically expedient on the left to say that. Um, you know, I, it, you, yeah. you, you know, the, the tagline on the left would be, oh, this is a land of, of, um, you know, bigotry and racism and there's no opportunity mm-hmm. and, oh, if only the government would just do a little bit more, then we'd be better. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, those are a series of propositions that form a mental identity mm-hmm. one way or the other, one way or the other, whether yeah. or not they actually, you know, um, bear out in the facts Mm -hmm. you can you can this is my whole issue with sociology in general which i feel like is the science that runs the democratic party it runs the it runs the republican party too but i feel like it runs the party you can you can aggregate facts and conglomerate facts and create a narrative Mm -hmm. it's just so whatever you want whatever you want yeah and um and so it's so boring to me it's like Mm -hmm. well then just tell me a good story Right. If you just want to tell me the story anyway, <laughs> just tell me the story yeah. and and what's actually going to help someone. So I, I love listening. I'm a podcast enthusiast and I love Bill Maher. 
I really have been liking Joe Rogan. Yeah. I don't agree all the time with, with their guests and that's okay. Right. Um, but yeah, like originally, let's say five months ago, I was completely in, uh, on board with the idea of reparations for African-Americans. Okay. Give every, give every African-American who has, uh, you know, slave ancestry, a hundred thousand dollars or okay. something. Okay. And then I listened to a great, um, was it hidden brain or studio 360 or Freakonomics, some, something like that. And they had a African-American economist, I think he was conservative, but that aside, um, talk about how he didn't agree with that. And he thought, okay, you could give every African-American a hundred thousand dollars. That doesn't change the producer versus consumer dynamic. Yeah. That maybe that money after two generations would essentially disappear and you would have this same imbalance. And so how do you level the playing field? Um, first of all, do you agree there is an imbalance? And I would say, yes, that should be obvious. But so to me, so now I'm not sure if I'm on board with slave reparations, but at the very least, you know, you give everyone a baseline of, you know, universal health care and a living wage and, uh, opportunities to uh, buy property at the same, you know, mortgage prices that that um, GIs had, or or um, free education, just those baseline things that can help people, you know, as as they say, lift themselves up by their bootstraps. You can't do that if you're working two jobs to pay the rent, or if you are under crushing debt. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing, you know, um, uh, it goes into the psychology of experience and the psychology of like, you know, how, what, what is the story, you know, what's the story? Cause, uh, like this guy I was telling you about earlier, Gary Vaynerchuk's dad came to this country, you know, knew Russian, <laughs> you know, wow. had to learn English, didn't have anything, mm-hmm. didn't have anything. They didn't have anything. Yeah. He, he started as like a, I don't want to say stock boy, but he started as like a cashier in a, a liquor store in New Jersey, Mm. but he didn't spend any money. Mm -hmm. He didn't spend any money. They never went on family vacation growing up Mm -hmm. ever. They didn't have stuff. And, he saved his money and he bought a business working. He, uh, Gary tells the story where he didn't know his dad until he was 14. And the reason he started knowing his dad at 14 is because he started showing up. He made his, uh, he made his son work. Wow. And then he knew it. He met his dad Mm -hmm. because his dad just worked endlessly to the point where, he saved up all his pennies and he, and he invested in a business. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and they still never spent any money. They poured all the money back in the business. And mm-hmm. Gary talks about this experience of not being fancy. Mm-hmm. He said, when anyone gets a little bit of money, like a hundred bucks in their pocket, they want to, they feel like, Oh, maybe I can go be fancy now. Yeah. And, and when they do that, well, where's that hundred dollars? Every hundred, every hundred bucks. Every yeah, hundred bucks goes away. 
And we, we make, we have such a, China does a good job at, at uh, supplying us with this stuff and everyone else, not just China, but, and we do it too. Low cost goods Yeah. that, um, what do they contribute to our life? Mm-hmm. You know? Not durable. Not durable. Not, yeah, they don't last. Yeah. I mean, they might not even be functional. Mm-hmm. Like they might just be for a look. Yeah. An appearance. Yeah. Um, how, you know, when I was getting out of debt, I listened to a guy that, you know, is very interesting. He has a radio show. It's called Dave Ramsey. He's a Southern evangelical Christian (laughs) and he gets you out of debt. I mean, you know, and he does. And he, and he, you know, he gives it all away for free. I mean, he, he, he charges for a program too, if you need it or whatever. And people need, sometimes people need like moral support, but I think I bought the, I think my wife bought me the book at Goodwill, you know, spent <laughs> yeah. $3 on his $30 book. Yeah. And, uh, just for fun though, at that point, because we had already been in it for six, eight months and it's all free on the internet. And if you have the discipline to do it, mm-hmm. you can get out and it takes some people seven years to dig out of debt. Yeah. And he says, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat rice and beans, beans and rice, mm-hmm. cheap meals, and you're going to get through. But when you're on the other side of it, you know, so I'm I'm um, I'm not against the government um, trying to supplement in situations where people seem to have dire need Mm -hmm. but i'm also not a fan of misidentifying need pretending that you have a firm grasp on it and pretending that you have the obvious answer so and to to your point the the problem with unintended consequences and again this was on freakonomics or hidden brain where um so it uh check the box it's a it's it's and i it's this it's this term that refers to um, uh, on a job application, there, a box being there saying, have you ever, are you a felon? Have you ever served time sure, in prison? Sure. And so that was seen as so abhorrent that I think a majority of U.S. states now have banned that box. And when I first heard that, I thought, that's great. That is a wonderful thing. They should have banned that. You shouldn't be judged on if you've spent time in prison. Mm-hmm. It had an unintended consequence. Which was? Which was instead of just looking at the box and saying, okay, this person has had has served prison time or not, they just look at African-American males and make that assumption. Jeez. And so now, statistically, uh, African-American males are less likely to get those jobs because they just assume at, at, at a higher rate than, than there actually is, um, you know, people that have served time in, in prison. Or you look at the, you know, the seatbelt laws. When, when, when people, with, when you wear a seatbelt, you feel like you can go a little faster. And you could say that for any sort of safety thing, and I don't think that's an argument to not have, have safety regulations. But the point is, there can be unintended consequences for something that seems so obvious. 
yeah, you, <laughs> this is just stupid. It should be obvious. I well, guess. yeah, this is a stupid argument, but you know, if you <laughs> if you get a box of condoms, you're going to use them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like you're interested in that. Right. Like you're, you're you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you know, whatever. It's that's just a silly way, way to put it, but yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're going to. Uh, there are knock on effects. Right. And so a living wage, I, I have read that, that that can have knock-on effects that are not beneficial. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you give everyone in America $1,000 a month, then you're not messing with the market. You're not messing with, um, Well, the know. money comes from somewhere. Yeah. I didn't see, this is where, uh, where Andrew, Lang, uh, Andrew Yang excuse me, lost me. Okay. Um, the VAT tax. Mm-hmm. I never saw a clear explanation of where he wanted to apply it. I don't know either. Yeah. And that was where he lost me. I was like, oh, sorry, Andrew. Mm. Tell me where the money is coming from. Mm -hmm. Actually, he's like, yeah, we're just going to charge a small percentage of every online transaction. Mm -hmm. We want to take advantage of all these big tech companies. What what, What are the margins on Amazon? You know, what are Amazon's margins? Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, it'd be an interesting thing to dig into. Yeah. You know, um, one of the reasons I like my business is because it's so labor heavy. Mm-hmm. I'm a fancy mechanic. Yeah. But that means my hands are worth money. Yeah. Uh, because I can make stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't just sell jewelry that other people made. You know. Yeah. And play those games. Yeah. Um, so where are your margins? You mm-hmm. know, and where do they exist? I get to look at another jewelry store's uh, QuickBooks. They they trust me clearly and uh he showed me his accounts and i'm like your cost of goods is stupid your cost of goods is killing he's like well why am i not making where's all my profit i'm like you dumped it back into cost of goods (laughs) and he's like well how do you not do that i'm like well you either have to make it yourself Mm -hmm. (laughs) charge more or find a better source of for your goods a cheaper source like you know and he couldn't get it but or maybe he did but yeah you know, and he's like, well, I don't have one of you. And I'm like, well, then you either have to become one of me mm-hmm. or, you know, and it's, it's it, investment in yourself is the biggest, you know, is the biggest thing. And I think that people don't invest in themselves. Um, and I don't just mean money. You can teach yourself a skill. I love the story about the Williams sisters, Serena Williams. And, yeah. Uh, they got introduced to tennis when their dad took a tennis VHS out from the library. Oh my God. I didn't know that. That's the kind of thing that, you know, I under it. I don't know. It, it, whenever you're talking about, I'm not denying about uh, denying oppression, things like that or, or racism or things, but it just, there are these other parts to the story. Mm-hmm. I have um, a family member who, through a series, I'll have him on the podcast sometime, tell his story, who through a series of choices, hard choices, got out of a pretty serious, seriously violent, drug-ridden, world Mm. in inner city LA. Wow. And made something of himself in an honest, good, like happy way. 
yeah and moved away from really a lot of toxicity mm-hmm. you know and where does he live now here yeah okay. in maine and, you know, I don't know how he would describe it, but that's what I've gleaned over the years. Mm. And, and, and he's married into my wife's family. And, um, and, you know, I, I would trust him. I would leave him. I leave my kids with him. I would yeah. never even think about, I mean, he's a member of our family. Right. I love him. I trust him. He's right. completely, you know, but then the backstory is crazy. Mm-hmm. The backstory is nuts. Wow. Uh, it, to the point where he hasn't even told me the backstory. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's intense. Yeah. And what do you do with people like that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, now that doesn't mean he hasn't faced serious hurdles. He's faced insane ones and it doesn't mean he hasn't, had to put up with racism and things because mm-hmm. he he has and he dealt with it in various ways at various moments. He's African American, I'm assuming. He is okay, and he's a brilliant person. Like he's just a brilliant guy and and resilient as hell. Mm. And you know, I I so it's complicated. Yeah, for sure. And and my issue is that because of political expediency, we pretend that the issues are simple, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. driving while black mm-hmm. is a phrase, I guess mm-hmm. on the left. Yeah. Uh, and it means something. Mm-hmm. And if you don't buy into the argument, maybe you're a racist mm-hmm. or you're, or you're denying reality. You're a denier. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another fun one. You're a denier. Right. right. It's like, well, how do you, this was my, this was my, um, when I started to crack, because I was studying St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas on just word theory in college, looking at Bush's choice. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I didn't crack right away. I was still in bed with the whole thing. But okay. eventually, the arguments got to me. One of the parts of determining a just war is that the, the, the people who are in... Um, in closest proximity to making the decision are the ones who actually determine whether it's a just war that it's a moral act. Yeah. You know? Right. So it's like, am I going to go punch that guy in the nose? Well, you can't decide that for me. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me that that, you know, I have to make that decision. Now you can react afterward, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but in terms of the moral reasoning on the inside and everything, I mean, so the, and it's not just one person, it's a group of people, right? you know? And so I would always say it's hard to answer whether a war is just because I wasn't in the room Mm -hmm. and I don't have all the facts. And if you don't have all the facts, you can't make a prudent decision, you know, and um, or as as best as you can, you know, as prudent a decision as you can. Now, in hindsight, when those papers are declassified, then different story. Then we have all the facts then we can make judgments. But to jump right on the news that day. Right. Bullshit. Yeah. Not possible. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Just not possible. Um, and it's the same thing with, with judging other people and racism. It's like, well, what are all the facts? Mm-hmm. There's a great, uh, speaker on Bill Maher's show two weeks ago, uh, African-American. I don't, I'm not, I, I, I listen to a show with headphones, so I don't actually see these people or their, their titles. Um, but he talked about how they were talking about how, um, African-Americans view, so much of this stuff very differently than white Americans, white liberals who are quick to call someone a racist. 
And his point was, I don't care if someone is a, quote, racist. That doesn't mean anything to me. What I care about is the structural racism in our country and do they support those policies. And and then they went in to talk about how Joe Biden or, or moderate Democrats really get more support from African-Americans because they just want something done. They just want, they want change that will actually happen. Whereas like voting for Bernie Sanders, they felt like that was too pie in the sky that he wouldn't get stuff done and they, they're more practical because this is life and death for them, life or death for them. Um, here's another, this is, I'm just gonna go on a little rant. Um, cultural appropriation. I'm half Chinese, so I can, I guess I, I'm allowed to talk about this a little bit. Well, I'll talk about it too. <laughs> but that's only because I own my own business. <laughs> I can't get fired. Right. Um, oh boy. So Moana. Love the movie. Moana, okay. Uh, Disney. Yeah, I, I, my daughter, we watched it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> there was this whole stink about uh, white children wearing the Moana costume or or oh. more egregiously wearing the costume of um, of the guy. Uh, the, Maui? Maui. Maui. Yeah. And having the, 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 you know, fake tattoos. Okay. Now, those tattoos are sacred in yeah. in, in, in their culture sure. to them. And so yeah. that scene is offensive. But the, it seemed like the people that were really get aff- getting offended were honestly white women in America. Okay. And like, I'll just use my mom as an example. She's Chinese American. Okay. Okay. My grandmother was born in China. She fled the communists. My grandfather was born in California, started in World War II. And when she was growing up in California in the 1960s, 1950s, hmm. 1950s, she didn't have any role models on TV, you know? So she couldn't dress up as a Asian Disney princess. She dressed up as, as white princesses. And so to her, the idea that white... She, she probably just dressed up as a princess. Well, that's true. Isn't that true? That's there's that. Too, that yeah. Okay, all right. But but so, <laughs> but so to but so to her, yeah. A white girl in America uh-huh. choosing to dress up as Mulan is awesome. Oh yeah, is well, incredible to her because that I means see. they're making a choice to say this yeah. Chinese princess character She's a hero. whatever is a hero, and I want and I want to yeah. be Mulan yeah. over you know Cinderella. Yeah, and so you know that sort of. Well, compare the two. I mean, well, right, right. <laughs> but, but so it's it's. I'd choose that one too. <laughs> it's it's just you know yeah. a lot of outrage f- for nothing. Well, what is the deal there? I mean, what what is the what is the essence to, um, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't really make any sense at the end of the day. I mean, well, let's let's play it this way. How do you make sense that? of the idea that cultural appropriations is a bad thing. Well, so what does it mean? What does it mean? Where's the moral violation in okay. other words? That's Good question. What I, Good question. You know, where, where is the more that, that someone would identify? I guess the, um, profiting off of a different culture and more, and more importantly, passing it off as your own idea. Um, now, cl- well, but that's true. So let's stop there for a second. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying I, I agree. If you with that. steal an idea, right? If you steal an idea, <laughs> uh, especially a copyrighted one, yeah. um, if you take an idea yeah. and use it, and it was someone else's, I mean, you're going to get it mm-hmm. legally, financially. Mm-hmm. So if if they have the power to sue you, yeah, they have the money to sue you, right? So I mean, I wonder what kind of ideas are we talking about? Yeah, you know, are we talking about hairstyle? 
Mm-hmm. Are we talking about clothing? Are we talking about the taste of food? I, I, I remember these two girls, I think it was, fell in, went down to Mexico for vacation. Mm-hmm. They tasted a real taco or something mm-hmm. like that for the first time or some barria or something. And, and, uh, or birria, excuse me. <clears throat> Beria and uh and then they came back and made a taco stand right and and then it got shut down yeah. <laughs> uh or 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 was threatened to be shut down right so what's but what's the core of it for you it's it's something that just doesn't offend me personally very much um i admiring other first of all admiring other cultures having having um souvenirs items from other cultures in your house because you because you love them i don't that doesn't bother me um stealing ideas and passing them off as your own i guess in any sense i think is not good and a problem well because i mean those that involves two things stealing and lying right <laughs> and those are bad guess, things pretty, right pretty basic <laughs> really basic yeah. so i guess i guess that that for me is always the issue i try to break down a lot of these highfalutin concepts yeah, good. Good. and so into cool. like the real basics like, are, are yeah. we are we talking about um, is, is cultural appropriation stealing mm-hmm. and lying? Um, if a if a Chinese person flips on a light switch, <laughs> okay, is that stealing? Mm-hmm. Now, it might not be lying because he's not pretending he invented it, right? But is that stealing from quote unquote? Now, I don't like all these monikers or terms. Actually, mm-hmm. I have my own theories about these things. Is that stealing from white culture? Flipping well, on a light switch. So, so the way this has been explained to me, yeah. and people yeah. have explained this to me that are, um, I guess, uh, educated on it, is that since white culture is the dominant culture, you right. can't steal from white culture. I see. Um, so take but, that. And does that make any sense? Or what does it even mean? I think mean? we're just splitting hairs. And, right. And, and here's a bigger point that I've been f- kind of feeling. Like, has life just gotten so comfortable we're wasting our time talking about this stuff? Yeah. You know what I mean? Big time. Um, when life got so comfortable for the Greeks, they invented philosophy. Hmm. And what life is getting comfortable for us. Yeah. And what are we doing? Okay, I'm I I'm going to I'm going to mention something that may be controversial <laughs> okay. that I want to talk about. Wait, first, can I go pee? Yeah. Okay. Do you I'll push just pause? Keep or, talking. You, okay, yeah, yeah, I can pause it. Okay, cool. Uh, you were about to tell me something maybe controversial. Yeah, so um there's this there's this sex advice columnist named Dan Savage. Uh, he's one of my absolutely favorite people. Um, I think he gives really honest, heartfelt advice to people straight, you know, straight, gay, the, the, the whole spectrum. It doesn't matter if you're a human being. Yeah. You know, people call in, they ask for advice. He he gives his advice. Okay. Um, he's a gay man. Okay. He is in his fifties. Yeah, Bill Maher. Sometimes is he on Bill Maher? Sometimes? Oh yeah, they're good friends. Okay, I thought I thought that I recognized the name. Yeah, um, he's mar- he's been married for I don't know, fifteen years, twenty years. He has a son, um, and and he opened he opened one of his shows with with basically this this statement that um, in the eighties when he was when he was a teenager in his twenties. Um, men were dying left and right from AIDS and, uh, and some people were being beaten to death, didn't have equal rights. You could be fired for being gay. And to be an ally then 
was the difference sometimes of life or death. Are you with me, you know, in terms of do you think I should have equal rights? Do you think I should have marriage equality? Do you think I should be able to adopt children? And that's what it meant to be an ally. And now, a lot of the time, it it's like if you don't use the right pronoun, you're not an ally. You're you're not you know even if you mess up unintentionally, um, if you don't you know do this or that. But back then, it was life or death. And and to me, you know what should be good enough to be an ally, ally for anything is. You know, I think we should have equal, you should have the same equal rights as me when it comes to everything. And if there is an imbalance, you know, I support everything that will make us balanced and equal. And, um, you know, I, I came out in high school as bisexual and, um, and I was at the time, and now I, I, I. This must have been after I left. Yeah, it was junior I know, year. I don't remember ever thinking about Josh Garrett's sexuality. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, a lot so, of people were forced to think about it when I came. Oh, out. I see, I see. Um, yeah, I, I, I was up in Northern Maine, sitting with the bears. <laughs> and so now I, I view myself as a straight-ish, but who cares? It doesn't matter. Okay. Um. And so I feel like I have some experience in this realm. You know, and 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 so that was in 2001 that I came out that way at at our school, at Camden Hills Regional High School. Yeah, and it was fine. People were very supportive, uh-huh. and no one was you know through a bigoted no, response no one was to me. Mean. No one was mean. Yeah, a friend of mine who we we were I guess in a fight at the time used a derogatory term about me to someone else when I wasn't even there. He got reported on. So the school had my back and it was perfectly safe. And it feels like now things are even safer for people LGBTQ uh-huh. in American high schools. I'm not saying it's perfectly safe, but it uh-huh. feels even safer to come out. Okay. And and I just wish that yeah, I don't know. We it should be it should we the supporting equal rights should be enough and 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 um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if if that could go back to is life just a lot easier now? Are are kids being coddled now? Growing up, that that I guess everything offends them. Um, you know, I I yeah. maybe that's maybe that's me sounding like an old man. Now. I have I I mean I watched the evolution of someone like Dave Rubin. You know Dave know Rubin. Is, no. Dave Rubin was a uh, is a gay man married uh, lives out in L.A. I think uh, he'll probably he'll probably follow Joe Rogan to Texas. But anyway, uh, and uh, and he um, I think he came from like a secular Jewish background and he trained under larry king i think so he's a he's a very professional interviewer like very interesting guy anyway he got he basically became what's the term red pilled where um he thought he was a progressive and he's slowly over time he realized he was a classical liberal live and let live Mm -hmm. like let's not shove it down your throat kind of yeah you know mentality and he and he shifted in a lot of ways and so, and his, you know, his politics shifted because of that. Okay. And 
I think, and this goes back to my question earlier, you know, family members and other people, you know, it's like, well, what do you do with the gay conservative? And that's that's different from the gay liberal, and that's different from the gay progressive, and the, and that and that and so what the interesting thing is is not really the gay thing; mm-hmm. it's the more, you know, what do you do with people with different political ideologies, right. especially if their um, if their political ideology doesn't quote unquote match up with their lifestyle that you would. Th- you would assume mm-hmm. that you would presume about them, right? Right. The presumption that you know every gay man is a libertine. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting presumption. Right. And um, and so, anyway, he he shifted his he shifted his um, his views a ton mm-hmm. uh, on that, and you know, and and I've heard him say the exact same thing. Oh, uh, am I just being an old man here? Yeah. You know, or does it show you that? You know, there are certain ways of thinking about things mm-hmm. that are more childish, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and then there are other ways of thinking about things that are a little more uh, mature. Several friends uh, in my high school experience and college, um, all men, um, I think it was maybe three, three people, uh, came out in, call, in, in that time that i was there okay. uh, to like to me personally okay you know yeah. and they were always waiting for my catholic response or something <laughs> i don't know and and it was always like you know what do you what do you even say what do you do? I mean, there's there's a human being in front of you yeah and that's the way i always look at people and what you know and it it's not going to change you know really it never struck me as i was never shocked first of all um Mm -hmm. it's like okay uh you weren't shocked because you saw signs that they were gay or no i just didn't didn't care care. yeah um but i didn't care because i you know it it has nothing to do well actually it has everything it has nothing and everything to do with my views on morality Mm -hmm. my very traditional catholic views on morality because the basis of the core of the position is it's a human being mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a human that person. should be first right it is first yeah and if you play any other card you're wrong mm-hmm. like you just you just screwed it up you played the wrong game in bridge or poker or whist or whatever like you mm-hmm. played the wrong card so you have a human being in front of you and they're telling them for whatever reason you know, I've never explored the cultural reasons for all of it. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, you know, oh, I have this deep, dark secret and I need to share it with the world or whatever, you know, like um, I've never explored it really. Except, I mean, I, I'm very interested in the character of, uh, of the person uh, of Oscar Wilde mm-hmm. um, and his book De Profundis particularly. But um, and he's a controversial figure mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but. Yeah, it's you have a human being in front of you. Yeah. And they're telling them some they're telling th- you something about their self-perception. You know. And the word the, the word homosexual is invented in the 18th century or 19th century, rather. Yeah. Uh so w- what are we really talking about? You know, we're talking about a post-Victorian you know, very British mm-hmm. uh, series of concepts 
And that's one, just as you were saying earlier, you know, when you saw those guys in camo, you could go up and walk and talk to them and make a friendship with them because you knew the lingo, the language, you had the experience of, of shooting guns of particular kinds and you could get into it. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think people appreciate that a lot of our views, mainstream American views on sexuality, human sexuality are based in uh, Victorian mores. Yeah, no, absolutely. And a rebellion to it. Totally underappreciated. But for me, that entire conversation is shit. (laughs) Because the premise is shit. Mm -hmm. And so the antithesis to the premise is shit. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's adequate to describe attraction in those categories. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's adequate. And I think that everybody who made Hay doing it, Kinsey, uh... Yeah, the scale. Mr. Playboy, what's his name? Hefner. Yeah. All of the rest of them, you know. There was a Playboy philosophy. <laughs> Hefner went on uh, Bill Buckley's show, hmm. uh, Firing Line, back okay. in the 60s okay. to discuss his Playboy philosophy. Well, Did you well, know there's a Playboy philosophy? What is it? It's, it's, a, it's, it's the... Um, it, it is the, um, the debunking of uh, the taboos around sexuality. And and it was it was in direct response to what they identified as the strict Victorian kind of set of mores. I mean, it's a it's but to me, it's a really, really crappy argument because it's based in a bad anthropology. Mm -hmm. Victorian anthropology sucks. I'm sorry. I hope I don't offend anyone, any Victorians (laughs) out out there. I don't think you will. Well, they founded this town. So Mm -hmm. maybe I would. I actually founded this town or their descendants. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I would, you know, I'm a, I'm a Franco Italian, you know, background. Mm-hmm. So those aren't my mores. Yeah. Like if I dig into my culture, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I had Harvey Ardman across the, the table and I said, Oh, you know, we, we were talking about race too. And he was, you know, sharing his opinions and I said, well, you know, some people would listen to this and look at us and say, well, you're just a couple of white guys. And then I, and I said, uh, you know, but a white, a white person's a Protestant that doesn't go to church. Mm-hmm. That's what a white person is. <laughs> That's really, I mean, cause all the, you know, the, um, the experience of being French and the experience of being Italian and, or a descendant of that. Mm-hmm. And the experience of being an Albanian or the experience of being a Greek right. or a, or Swedish, they're very different. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And somehow, and actually I really appreciate the Wikipedia article on this because it call, under if you look up the word white mm-hmm. race, white race, and you read the Wikipedia article, it talks about pseudoscience. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I think this is a bunch of pseudoscience. Mm. I think it's an uninteresting, unhelpful category. Mm. And it also breeds, by the way, on the other side, on the super far right, it breeds some crazy superiority theories. Right. Bullshit. Right. right. Um, so I think we should eliminate it because I don't think it's helpful. Mm-hmm. But it's very helpful for the Democratic Party. It's very helpful for the Democratic Party. It really is. I, I I think, 
um, it, it's probably it's it's actually quite helpful for the Republican Party too. But I, it's not interesting, and it doesn't tell you about anything about a person. Right. It's, it's the most facile, shallow way to view a human being. Yeah. It's interesting how many times I've I've checked a box. You know, check the races that apply to you. And what do you check? A lot of the film festivals. You know. Uh, Caucasian, Why are Chinese. they asking about your race on a film festival? See, it's it's interesting. I don't I don't really know. I don't know if it's affirmative action. I don't think it is. But you know, that's that's in, like, what if what if I got into a festival, but the re, but the only reason that I I got in was that little push that I was Chinese American got me in there would you like that no i would hate that ah. and I, I don't so think you're it, not a racist <laughs> <laughs> and i don't think anyone would want to feel oh, that way God. including african-americans to feel like i um you know I, I i produce this piece of of art or work and i don't actually know if people liked it but i mean may, i don't i don't know how pe- i don't want to tell other people how they would feel yeah. i mean in the sense of like maybe they would be appreciative i don't know yeah like i don't know yeah uh, who, what anyone would feel about any particular government policy that helped them. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I agree with affirmative action for a lot of things, including colleges and universities. Um, but why? Because of that history of racism and that imbalance of how, um, how resources were allocated. The racialization of the slave trade is, um, you know, it was born out of it's really worth reading the history of this it was you know the racialization of the slave trade was born out of the um out of race theory which is an invention of the british huh in again we're going into the eight, uh, 18th and 19th centuries was it that africans would be harder workers or i mean they they that they were subhuman okay you know of course who's below uh black people in charles darwin's theory no who's worse than the blacks who the irish really yep well how do you come up with that well they're not british (laughs) and then it goes back to the religious wars i didn't realize he he had those thoughts oh yeah i don't know much about charles darwin oh yeah you know all the all the heroes all the hero all the heroes of the so-called you know i mean he's this isn't he the isn't he the prophet of of the atheist movement? I mean, doesn't mm-hmm. he allow you to not believe in God because suddenly mm-hmm. we have an adequate explanation for the origin right. of the species? Right. Scientific, yeah. Which, of course, we don't. I don't think personally. I don't think we have an adequate explanation. But it's a neat it's a neat uh, project. But um, you know, all the heroes: Margaret Sanger, very racist woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually racist. That is to say, I believe that certain types of people based on the structure of their skull mm-hmm. and their skin color uh, and their and certain ethnic habits or cultural habits are inferior. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's the most insane thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's totally uh, it's totally not the experience. It's interesting. The experience of um, of people, human beings, regardless of color in uh, New Orleans was very different than the rest of the country hmm. their treatment their okay. treatment was very different and um you know and it was a different anthropology it was a different philosophy of life yeah it was a different way of looking at the world you're saying back in the day back in the day yeah 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 um and uh 
Yeah, and and for sure, racist attitudes um, prevailed. A really disgusting anthropology and race theory took hold in the United States, but it's the stupidest theory. See, the the idea of race theory itself for me is a conversation I just wouldn't want to be to have. Hmm. I think it. We never thought about things this way as a society. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't the way, uh, and I I don't think it's the way forward. Um, there was a, a young man who I, I think I used to teach eighth grade CCD to or something. Anyway, he's an actor, singer, and he lives down in New York most of the time. But he came back during the pandemic, which everybody did. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he put on a, um, a dance for Black Lives Matter, like a benefit okay. concert for Black okay. Lives Matter in the in the green. And I asked him, um, which is, you know, cool. And I asked him uh, what. Uh, I said, who was, who was right about this whole race thing? I said, was Martin Luther King right or was Malcolm X right? Early Malcolm X or late Malcolm X? Mm-hmm. And, you know, different philosophies, different worldviews, yeah. entirely different projects based in entirely different ideas. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's, I think it's a hard question to answer. Yeah, for anyone. For anyone. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I like to have, I'm, I'm impressed that people are out there protesting and, um, and because for me to do something like that requires not only certainty around the issue, mm-hmm. but also certainty that what I'm do, what the actual action of protesting is making a difference. Yeah. Cause I don't want to waste my time. Absolutely. And I don't, I generally don't go to protests because I support them. Absolutely. But when they're for like causes, the freedom I of them. Well, the freedom to do it. Obviously. Yeah. Well, of course that. And, 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 you know, black lives matter protests. I, you know, when I see that stuff on TV, I'm, I'm usually cheering for it, but for me personally to put myself out there and maybe maybe that's me being selfish my, selfish with my time but i wonder you know me standing there how much good is that going to do you know in versus and it doesn't have to be either or but you know compared to holding elected office and taking those votes and actually moving that goalpost forward in terms of equality um, I had a, I mean i had the experience in when i was in college and when i was in seminary the big there was a big I was in Washington, D.C. at the Catholic University of America, and every year they have a pro-life march. Okay. Huge. It's the it's the biggest march every year in Washington, D.C. How many people, generally? I don't know. It's huge. Okay. You, you'd have to look it up. Year to year it changes. But mm-hmm. it's it's enormous. It's okay. insane. And um, now, I don't, re- I don't remember if the women's march, the first one, was bigger. It mm-hmm. could have been. I mean, there's, there were moments. But for, yeah. for a long time. And mm-hmm. my, when I was down there, it was well before the women's march and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the current statistics are. You could just look it up, whatever it is. But anyway, it's really big, and um, and I went. You know, mm-hmm. all there's all these priests there and nuns and 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 then after a while, I was like, okay, what or what is that? What is this? Are we just talking to just ourselves every year? It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Are we just talking to ourselves? Mm-hmm. So I modified my approach. I stopped going. <laughs> 
I stopped going. I would just sit there. I would watch all the crowds because I was living in a place. I just stopped going. Yeah. And, you know, did my homework or whatever it was I had to do. You yeah. know, just and um, it didn't. That doesn't. It didn't change my position on things, right? Uh, per se mm-hmm. or whatever my position is. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's nuance. And um, and then, you know, I, I went. I got invited to go to abortion clinics. Stand outside of abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. went. Okay. And uh, they would pray the rosary outside abortion clinics. And some people would engage in like sidewalk counseling. And they were pretty successful actually in terms of like if the goal is stopping a, like a particular woman from going in and getting an abortion. Like mm-hmm. they were actually pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Um, very trained, compassionate. Not like screaming in people's faces. Oh God, no. No, wholly, wholly different approach. Yeah. No, quiet rosary over here. Okay. Although I was at one, uh, there was a competing college that also went, and they would go and they would scream. <laughs> they would scream at the end, and I was like, "Well, that's certainly something." Um, they would, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, they, they, they screamed the, uh, the, uh, the, the cry that I think it was the South American, um, militant. Christian group, I can't remember the name of it, uh, would scream. They'd scream, Viva Cristo Rey, which is, you know, long live Christ the King or something. But they scream it and it's like, okay. That's That's convincing. What does it mean? You know, I mean, it was like historically when it actually happened, Mm -hmm. they were were getting shot. Mm -hmm. Like it was a... um, Meaningful then. Well, yeah. And they were, they were, they were being, you know, it was a firing line or something like that. Wow. You know, oh and they God. screamed it and then they got killed, you know, oh so God, yeah. fair, you can imagine a movie. <laughs> right. It's very, you know, very poignant moment in the movie. Right. Um, not so much there. <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, so it's the same thing. And I, you know, so I, I recognize that the women, it was all, almost always women who were doing the sidewalk counseling. Um, you know, I mean, I recognize that as like a very power, whatever you want to say about it, mm-hmm. it's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, because we're talking about something that's not trivial. Yeah. And um, one way or the other. And so it it was it was powerful to see. But I realized, like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing here Mm -hmm. exactly. You know, Um, that's when I started to identify, like, okay, what is your passion? What do you put what do you put yourself out doing? And I. And I would look back at the lives of the saints or just, you know, other like social figures and, you know, people don't do everything. We don't have enough time in this life. There's, it's impossible. Yeah. Every person, I told this to someone who's very passionate about a project. I said, well, that's a beautiful passion project. And she said, it's not a passion project. It's the most important issue in the entire world. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, she wasn't thrilled with me. <laughs> And I didn't mean to put the issue down. Yeah. And I thought the issue was actually really important. Yeah. But it's a passion project. Mm-hmm. Like your passion, you see it as important. You're going to put your whole life into it. Yeah. And for you, it is the most important issue in the world. Yeah. And that's cool. Like yeah. you should run with that. Yeah. Um, support you, you know. But uh, that's when I realized, yeah, the great people in the world get focused mm-hmm. and they really have to find what it is that, that, and that again, that doesn't mean that they have views or don't have views on things. This is an interesting point going back to the, our entire conversation about the ability to have conversations or not. Um, I'm studying, uh, in my 
continual interest in virtue ethics. I'm studying somebody right now called Balthazar Gratian, who is a 16th century Jesuit priest. And he wrote a book called The Art of Worldly Wisdom. And it's basically how to survive in a courtly setting, Hmm. uh, in like a king prince's court. Yeah. And it's very political, very dicey. You could get killed if you say the wrong thing kind of deal. Yeah. So he wrote The Art of Worldly Wisdom. And it's basically uh, how to have conversation, how to be... um, how to you know act well and act correctly in every situation, mm-hmm. regardless of what you know who to choose for mentors and all these kinds of. Things. It's an amazing book. That sounds pretty incredible. It's when was it written? Sixteenth century. Okay. It's maybe seventeenth, early seventeenth. Anyway, it's inc- it is an absolutely vital book. It's like a little bit Jesus and a little bit Machiavelli, and it's mixed up. Oh, I love it. That it's, sounds great. It is, um, and I I love it because it it. I love it actually, because I, I I'm I sort of am of two minds about things. Mm-hmm. I want I want the pure, unadulterated, um, sort of upstanding moral dimension of Catholicism, but I also want to be effective in the world. Right. And I feel like those two things are often not connected. Yeah. I feel like this guy connects it. I feel like this guy knows what's up. He can always remain moral mm-hmm. for his own conscience. Mm-hmm. You know, he never has to. Um, sell himself yeah but at the same time this guy's crafty as hell mm. it's amazing anyway so um he he talks about the art of conversation and one of the things that i've noticed in having conversations you know on the podcast but also with people with whom i you know vehemently disagree um in the last let's say two years is that i you don't always need to respond to what someone is saying by negating it. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean that you affirm it. Mm-hmm. That's not, those are not your only two options. Right. But, but cable TV has primed us for that, right? You have to respond with, with equal force. Yeah. It's almost like the Hegelian dialectic. It's thesis, antithesis. And then the synthesis is you watching their commercials. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like sticking around for the next segment of right. thesis, antithesis. Right. I grew up watching that on PBS on the McLaughlin group, group mm. on my father's knee. You know, wow. John McLaughlin is this like old school. He was a, actually, I think he was a priest, but he's this like old school politician-y kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And he would have the two, you know, Pat Buchanan mm-hmm. and the opposing liberal and they, and you know, three or four people down the panel and they would just go after Bill Maher is very much set up like that. Mm-hmm. Although Bill Maher doesn't play exactly the same game as that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little more fun, but yeah. theirs was very serious and mm-hmm. theirs was pre Fox news. Mm-hmm. It was on PBS okay. and it, and it really hammered home that kind of bang, 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 and it's not helpful. No. Because to to me. Yeah. Because the art of conversation has a different goal. Right. It's not to dominate. No. It's not. Yeah. And and actually and the thing I'm learning even now is it's not even to convince. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's and again, that's different than political conversation. I think the art of political rhetoric is to paint the other side poorly you know and hit like i thought the democratic national convention was executed i know it got a lot of criticism but i know it was executed very well because it hit everywhere where trump is weak mm-hmm. it went it played character and it played empathy yeah. over 
and over and over and over because it appears or they will and they can help you make it seem like it appears that trump has no empathy Mm -hmm. and has no character you know yeah to me the truth is he has a complicated character he's good on some things and bad on some things and then and then his empathy is rarely displayed I think he has more empathy than he displays, like as a human being. Hmm. Maybe not a lot, mm-hmm. but I I think he. And I and you don't cert- think he's just a sociopath? No, I don't think he's a sociopath. I think he is a. Um, I think he is a product of a really screwed up house. Mm-hmm. I think he bought into the rules and the mores of whatever version of America that was yeah. back in the day. Yeah. I think he likes it, likes a strong America, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the rough and tumble kind of, you know, go get him kind of yeah. deal. I think he lived his life that way. Don't show weakness ever. Correct. Yeah. I think he, um, which I don't agree with, like at all yeah. for for living life mm-hmm. now granted if you are vulnerable or is rather if you are if you show your weakness you make yourself vulnerable to attacks mm-hmm. so i sort of get it too mm-hmm. but people can attack you for whatever reason yeah so i'd rather err on the side that's where I, that's an area where i liked someone like andrew yang he was willing to be just a vulnerable yeah just be himself and, from the start yeah and not be political at all yeah and i appreciated that and um, now Trump also did that, but he did it through strength, through mm-hmm. through projecting strength, mm-hmm. right? But he did he did the same thing. He was willing to say whatever. Yeah, he was just willing to say whatever as a projection of strength. Right. And um, and I think that he he you know he learned the winning philosophy very early in his life. Um, that the point of life is to win it. Mm-hmm. And um, I used to not think at all. Um, that I used to like disagree with that a hundred percent. I I didn't think uh, about life at all about like winning. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably think that that's twenty percent correct <laughs> <laughs> because you have to um, you have to make progress in life, right? Like personal progress. Yeah. Um, and if you don't see your life in the context of growing and personal progress, then you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. So I think that there is some truth to that. Mm-hmm. But if you just make a hundred percent of your life about that, I think you're gonna right at the expense of people's feelings and lives and exactly and that's certainly a you know part of you could criticize trump on moral failure in that area so um yeah i don't know it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting place to be but yeah so the art of conversation the art of not saying things when you could Mm -hmm. and really trying to you know appreciate i guess appreciate you know the person who's sitting across from you as opposed Mm -hmm. to just um you know, trying to beat the other person down into the ground. Absolutely. Um, I think that's really important um, for for moving forward. And I, I, um, I, I would like to see the, I would like to see the art of conversation at least a little more available in the political sphere. I don't think it is. Um, I don't know how we get there though. Um, and it depends if you're talking, you know, local, state, national. Um, people's attention spans are so short now. Well, is that true? I mean, you listen to Joe Rogan. Well, not 
not me. I have, I have a very long attention span. No, but but yes, that's that's true. But I mean, like, not a lot of people will will listen to Joe Rogan because yeah. just the length, right? You know, and with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, everything is so in, so uh, quick. Sure, I guess. Sure, and so. And time. Do people have the time? Right. You know, versus working long hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. It, it it definitely does present a challenge. I would see it more through the lens of um, the reason it is because still at the end of the day you want to beat the other person into the ground. Right. Going back to the two party system or yeah. whatever system. Yeah. Um. You you have to beat the person. So you have to characterize Joe Biden in a particular way. Mm-hmm. You know mentally unsound right right would be the easy one yeah you know and you just play a bunch of clips and then there's your commercial right good done done simple done don't have to have nuance that's it yeah what um what do you like about um uh the the policy platform of biden uh, or is this just uh let's just be done with Trump? Just be done with Trump. Is that really where it is? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I don't care what Biden's platform is. Uh, he's, oh no, he's a Democrat. That's so concerning for me. And it's better than I'm sorry, I I can't get on a I can't get on a you know sing the praises of Joe Biden. Yeah, he's a Democrat and, and he's a decent human being, lifelong Democrat. Yeah, and I does Kamala Harris. I'm not sure how you say her first name. Actually, Kamala. 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 I think Kamala. There was some criticism about. Anyway, whatever. Um, so Bernie, Harry, yeah. Bernie Sanders yeah. is who I identify the most with. Okay, and I voted for him in 2016 and 2020. And then, and then Hillary. Of course, I voted for Hillary. But I mean, like in the primaries, yeah. I voted for Bernie, Bernie both times. Yeah. And so that's that's where I think America needed to go. I think with Joe Biden, you know, if he's elected. Um, I think we'll tread water for four years. Yeah. Um, Do you think that Bernie Sanders represented a step on 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 the same kind of trajectory that America's going, or does he represent a departure for a new and better world? A complete departure. Okay, so you would you would recognize that the solutions that he is offering are um, uh, discontinuous would be the word I would use, but uh, that they represent a a different point on this. um, Absolutely. Just like social security was Medicare, Medicaid, the voting rights act, the civil rights act. I mean, these were such massive, not gradual shifts, but departures that shifted, I think, um, the trajectory of America for the better. And I think that that's what we need now. I think a majority of Americans, they want so many of those policies that Sanders supports. Um, and so you know, if that's true though, why, yeah. you know, where, where did he fail? He failed. I, I don't know. I think, I think it was such a split primary Yeah, and it was, frankly a stroke of genius to to consolidate the non sanders primary block right before was it right before super tuesday it's all it feels like old such ancient history now but that was yeah it was a coordinated attack basically and it was and it worked so do you think someone like aoc will sort of resurrect sanders in you know 10 years or whatever eight years yes i hope she runs for president and i will gladly vote for her um something about aoc is that she is not afraid of discussion and debate Mm. and 
and and uh you know to me she's not a radical at all she has the intestinal fortitude to have discussions and debate and not and not have to you know back into a corner where it's like oh you're being sexist you're being bigoted no she doesn't bother with that she just talks to you and debates and and doesn't because she has a very strong will um and and she's respectful and just so many of those same um qualities that i see in in sanders um and i hope that's the future of the democratic party you know to not throw um virtue bombs of you're being racist you're being bigoted no let's just have a debate so the other the other piece that seems to be like a civil war in the Democratic Party right now is its ties to large corporations, mm-hmm. Wall Street, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I really. So, I mean, Biden would be strongly in that camp. Absolutely. And Obama was, too, absolutely. frankly. Absolutely. Yep. Right. No question. Yeah. So, you know, as and we, we need to kill that. We need to sever that. See, tie. I, that 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 I actually agree with to a great degree as well, not because I'm after some socialist paradise but mm-hmm. because um you know money in politics again it's to me it's the same thing as that person who gets their first hundred dollars yeah it's the fancy card yeah it's it's the fact that you can get you know three homes yeah when you go into politics without any money and come out with and you can buy three homes yeah regardless of who you are right. uh not okay right to me yeah that just means you got you got paid back, baby, mm-hmm. for a series of decisions, right. and, um, and and it's not you know I don't I don't hate corporations or anything like that. No, but, me either. But but the the political voice in Washington should should come from the power of your constituents supporting right. your policies, right. you and your policies, not from corporation. That's such an obvious thing. Right. It's such an obvious American should be an American value. Yeah. You know. Um, but it's but it doesn't seem to be. No, it doesn't seem to be right now. It seems that uh, we uh, that both the Democrats and the Republicans. And this would be a view that I actually got from someone like Jimmy Dore, Hmm. um, who's very far left Hmm. um, and was a big Bernie supporter um, and a big Tulsi supporter um, also. Um, But, you know, somebody like Jimmy Dore, who um, just recognized that both parties were so in it in it so deep Mm -hmm. that uh they weren't really representing you yeah you know they were representing someone else so the thing the thing about aoc and there's a number of other politicians in washington uh i'm pretty sure it's sanders as well they don't dial for dollars they don't waste their time calling and this is this is democrats republicans this is all of them except for a handful of of uh progressives um yeah um you know she she spends that time researching and going to committee meetings and hearings that's good you know and that's i think the dialing for dollars should stop i think we should outlaw it i'll have to i'll have to look into her more i'm 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 not that her politics would just not match up with mine for the for the most part okay um that's just not where I am. Yeah. Um, but I, I am interested in character. Yeah. And so I'll have to look at her on the level of character. Yeah. Um, from, you know, I like to look at it. I like to find people who are not trying to win political points. Again, it's all tied to money. Mm-hmm. You know, um, everyone on Fox News is getting paid for one thing. 
and yeah. everybody on CNN's getting paid for something else. Mm-hmm. And so it's just so... Well, yeah, professional commentators, you know, you should... It's, it's hacked. Take, exactly. I just shut it off. Yeah. I just shut it off. Yeah. It's just not helpful. Yeah. I find, I find someone like Joe Rogan to be, you know, much... And I know, you know, he bills himself as an idiot, and he kind of is, and... And I, but I find him to at least be interested mm-hmm. in having conversation. Yeah. Did you see that? Did you see that Trump uh, tweeted about Joe she, Rogan hosting yeah, a four-hour debate? I did see that. So the best move for Biden or for Biden would be not to have a debate. Yeah, I it, would say so. Is I, that going to happen? I. Or is I mean, does he get his does he get his wish? I don't know. Even if it's the best thing for him politically, I don't care. I think it is the duty of political candidates to have debates. Yeah. You know, ultimately, I put that at a higher level than him, you know, making a smart political move. That's just too important to me. I mean, I I can't. Trump wiped the floor in those debates with those people. He was just he was so different than anything than any animal. I know anyone has ever encountered. And he was brilliant. I know he it, was a genius. He he ripped them apart. Yeah, and I think he's got the soul of a comedian, actually, because mm-hmm. he has that. And that's quick, what's so powerful that quick yeah. ability. You know, yeah, you have to figure out whether the com- comedian's wearing a frown or a smile. But you know <laughs> what I mean. But it's like yeah. he's got the soul of a comedian, and yeah. it's it's like, what do you do with that? Right? How do you beat that? I thought I, I thought Hillary Clinton did well in those debates sure but it didn't matter it didn't matter yeah yeah no she was she was well prepared seasoned political candidate yeah. etc doesn't matter yeah it doesn't matter i just i'll say one thing and then i should probably go yeah. um yeah sure you know i i and this is this is why i agree with you about political hacks on all the news channels um being a bernie supporter that 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 um they were just so confident she was going to defeat Trump. She was so electable. And and it's like no one could even take a little step back for a moment and say, a lot of people don't like her. Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, probably mostly wrongly, they don't like her. They don't like the Clintons. and They were done. They were, yeah. And, and right. you can't just discount that. You can't say, well, Bernie is less electable than Clinton because he's, you know, far left. Okay, yeah, that may turn off a number of voters, but then you also need to balance that against her unlikability score, you know? And lo and behold, you know, people don't like being scolded into, you know, voting for someone, especially someone they're not exactly thrilled about as a person. You know, for Joe Biden, I think he's just a really likable, decent person, right? I I don't really know anyone that doesn't like him um, as a human being, even Republicans. I mean, can you really say I hate Joe Biden? I don't, I've never heard anyone say that, you know? So at least that won't be going against him. But that was just, yeah, it was just very frustrating. I think, you, you know, when, when you're married to the charisma king, as Hillary is, mm-hmm. you know, that probably didn't help her because yeah. there's just some compare contrast. She has yeah, the same absolutely. last name yeah. and he was, he was pure charisma. Yeah. And she just was more of like the political ideologue. Mm-hmm. I feel like she yeah. she was always the, more of the political ideologue. 
and he was more that classic, you know, glad-handing politician kind right. of guy. That's why he was so successful. That's right. And Bush, too, frankly, actually, you know, on person. Bush yeah. did the same thing. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think I think uh, Biden is a little bit more cut out of that cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, w- I mean, I, it's going to just come down to a couple of people in the middle of the country. I mean, yeah. that's really what it's going to be. No one's going to change their votes. No, of course not. And then even if Biden wins... Um, I, I, there was something that Bill Maher said that, that even if he, if he wins a popular vote by 2 million votes, 3 million votes, 4 million votes, it's not a hundred percent that he'll get the electoral college. Right. And so he needs to win, you know, at least by five, at least 5 million votes to definitively win the electoral college. Like that's terrifying. But then the other part is (laughs) what if he doesn't win? What if he wins with both popular Uh vote, electoral college, Uh but it's a little close. And so Trump, calls contest for it. people in the streets and contested and and yeah. and we have a coup. Yeah. That's yeah. not out of the that's not out of the realm uh, to me just knowing Mar that's you know he does that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh I I I I I will say it I'll put I'll say it this way. Uh if yeah, if Biden wins Trump's gone. Okay. Trump's out. That's me that's me personally. Yeah. That's just me thinking I know Trump's character better than Bill Marnos's character. That's just me. Yeah. If he lose if he def- if he loses. Now yes. Could they play the hanging Chad card again, mm-hmm. you know, Al Gore or whatever, right. and uh, and make a news story out of that for a while? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could. Um, if it's really close, is it worth it? I guess, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But yeah. I think once it's determined, I think he's out. I don't think it will be. I, I have never viewed Trump, and again, people will not like me for this, but I've come to my own decisions and, and views. I've never been afraid of Trump. And I think I've been right because he de-escalated wars. Mm-hmm. He didn't bomb, you know. He didn't start something. I guess Afghanistan, you could... Iraq, mm-hmm. Iran. It was supposed to be Iran. Right. That he was the next it. enemy, yeah. and he didn't do it. Yeah. You you could argue that through benign neglect, you know, two hundred thousand people are are dead because of COVID, but that wasn't. They were going to be dead anyway. I. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. I read this really great article in the Atlantic called "The American Death Spiral." Yeah, I read it. Okay, and yeah, uh, yeah just laying out all those all those things. But. I think I think uh, unfortunately, um, you know, the 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 data is so muddled right now. We don't have any uh, we don't have any flu data. Mm-hmm. We We're just, also one of the most unhealthy countries in the world. Yeah, so and that tie between obesity and COVID deaths is obviously and uh, vitamin D deficiency. Yep. I think this winter we're going to see, even with all the masks in place, I think we're going to see a spike mm-hmm. in deaths. I mean, we're about to enter flu season. Yeah, you know, that's we're about to enter COVID season. Yeah. Like, People take your vitamin D. Yeah, I know. There's a link. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, no, a ninety percent link. Yeah, it's yeah. there. It's uh, it's uh, it's, it's cheap. there. It's cheap and it's there. Yeah. So I think, I think, uh, and also, you know, are people that healthy when it comes to um, their lung capacity? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the strength yeah. of your lungs? Right. And um, yeah, I, I, you could say that you, it's, it's hard for me to make the argument because I don't know where the basis of making the argument is coming from. Yeah. Well, it's still changing. Yeah, well, but that, but I mean, also like, you know, when should we have had masks on, mm-hmm. you know, China's through it. Yeah. Or sort of. Yeah. You know, I mean, it ripped Italy apart. Yeah. Because Italy is unhealthy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, okay. it ripped them apart worse than it ripped Spain apart. Yeah. Like it ripped, you know, it ripped them. I think they were the worst in, I think they were the worst in Europe. Yeah, they were. And, uh, and they are the most unhealthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I feel like, yeah, if you want to blame Trump, go ahead, do it. Fine, fine. You know, it works. It'll certainly forward your narrative. That's great. Just do it. <laughs> it's great. You know, he sucks. You forwarded your narrative. Perfect. You threw the ball down the field. Fine. You made your play. Fine. I get it. Uh-huh. But it's still going to rip unhealthy countries apart. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. that's what COVID's going to do. Right. It's a really severe illness yeah. if you get it, mm-hmm. especially in a high viral load. Yeah. And if you have any comorbidities, you're screwed. Yeah. You're screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you do with that? Yeah. You know? Uh, and and the and the knock on effects of shutting everything down has the uh, mental you know just the mental health mental health and then the mental health tied to cardiovascular right right the stress from that affects the right. body right so. so I feel like there was certainly no panacea here there was no solution mm-hmm. that was going to uh, you know prevent. N- a great number of deaths because we because to be honest with you we've either had it or we need to get it mm-hmm. like that's the other thing we we need to get it you know and it's just a question of are we going to get it before or after a vaccine mm-hmm. but we need to get it mm-hmm. like it's out there yeah it's not something that's not out there in the world right. that we won't brush up against at some point right with, yeah, i mean we may have already had it with or without a mask yeah so, you know, that's the other consideration. It's mm-hmm. like, everybody's going to get it. You mean like either get it from a vaccine or... Or brush into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the vaccine theory that we're going to have one next year, I just don't... I'm not... I hope so, but I'm not... I'm not pining... You know, I'm not putting my... Mentally, I'm preparing for that not to be the case. I don't get a flu vaccine. Never I don't have, either. Never don't have. Either. The only time I got one was when my... Well, actually, My second niece was under a month old, and I wanted to see her. I I, I should re- I should rephrase. That. I got it once, and I got the worst flu ever. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, Jesus. yes, sir. And I've oh. never and I've and I was just like, I, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. But you know, I'm I'm glad it helps some people. I guess I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really don't know how many people it helps. But um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all all plays out yeah anyway thanks for coming on josh i really appreciate it and uh and we'll have you on at some future point you're welcome john thank you this is fun thanks